Hello, and welcome to this brand new episode of Silmarillion Film Project. I am your co-host, Dave Kale, and this is a fun episode because we're finally going to wrap up script discussions from Season 3. Or will we? <laughs> Tune in to find out. <laughs> it's a lot of suspense to find out whether we'll be able to do it. That's right. Uh, that's the plan anyway. We're going to knock out uh, episodes 11 and 12 and 13, uh, the season finale, and then we're going to hopefully get to sets and locations, which our, um, which our listeners have very kindly gone through and provided lots of brainstorming and photos and things, which uh, Marie collated for us in this lovely PowerPoint that uh, Corey is showing you if you've tuned in live and you're watching. Um, Hopefully we'll get to look at some of those. But oh, yeah. if history is any guide, next episode. <laughs> uh, and if you can probably hear, I am joined, as always, by the Tolkien professor, Corey Olson, and the Tolkien maven, Trish Lambert. And then, of course, um, as we have been the last few episodes for our script discussions, we are also joined by Marie Prosser and Nick Palazzo, our um, uh, what, what are what are your official job titles? Yeah, you I guys have you, you need job titles. Do you guys have a job title? Do you figure that out yet? Are, are you are you like um, story editors, um, showrunners? You guys might be the showrunners. No, you guys are the showrunners. Show right? No, we're yeah. the we're the execs. I think you guys are the, the you're like the head writers in the in the writers room, running things, That's breaking stories. So yeah, I think I think you're hey, showrunner. If you want to, if you want to declare me showrunner, I'll take it. <laughs> no, yeah, you guys are the ones that are responsible for, for yeah. breaking the stories, managing the writers, and and executing. And we're the people who just occasionally drop out of from on high and give you infeasible constraints to work with. Okay, the, we can work with that model. They're executing the writers too. Wow. Yes, 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 that's right. Wait, wait, you, you really don't want to give me that kind of power to execute people. <laughs> that's I'm right. serious. <laughs> that's right, we have, well, if it, we've given them if the it, ultimate if it authority. Us, if it help, helps us keep the budget down. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime anybody gets up at you, they just send me in. Well, that tends to happen on the board, so yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right, exactly. Cool. All right, so yes, welcome back, everybody. Good to uh, uh, good to be back, and I just I don't know I I uh, I'm so unapologetic about spending more time talking about the outlines as I love going over and and uh, uh, re- both reviewing and uh, and revising and and uh, you know sort of ironing out the stories. Love to see how uh, these are developed. It's such a it's such an important element, right? I mean, as we go through. Our episode-by-episode discussions first, we're talking about big concepts and and isolated ideas. But, of course, the the real challenge, I think, of adaptation, uh, particularly when we're talking about the Silmarillion, um, you know, and I've said this, you know, before, but the, the main thing is that we're making it into a totally different kind of story than it is in the published text. Uh, And to be able to, to... Doing this final stage... Um, and it's why I love the work you guys do in the script outline so much uh, to sort of show how we're going to be taking this and really working it into um, 
bringing it all together into this kind of uh, uh, of of close narrative story where we're looking at character development and 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 showing all these things working together and the 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 sort of the logical links from one event to an rather than just kind of giving a series of events and and kind of the big picture highlights that we so often get in the published Silmarillion because that's the kind of narrative it is you know, that kind of historical overview. Uh, so that shift down from historical overview to, uh, you know, to, to continuous developing narrative requires a lot of, you know, development and massaging and, and, and that's really, um, and that's really cool. But, uh, yeah. Anyway. So, uh, so excellent. So let's do this, but before quick, uh, quick couple announcements. Uh, first of all, just again, another reminder, summer reading program, our, our summer camps are coming up. Uh, uh, group registration is open. We really strongly urge people to register for this, not only <clears throat> to be working with your public libraries, your local public library, uh, to perhaps be running a session themselves, but also to be, um, uh, you know, uh, local groups, uh, single family groups, multifamily groups can kind of get together and do this on their own. Really fun cool opportunity. We give you all the resources you need to do it on your own, um, you know, to, to host a session on your own, uh, have some fun activities to do with the kids as they're reading through these books and everything. So again, we're doing the four books, The Hobbit, Harry Potter, and The Sorcerer slash Philosopher's Stone, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and Wrinkle in Time. So uh, you can do uh, 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 one or any or all of those four camps, all of it totally free with uh, lots of free resources and with live interactive discussions uh, with our teachers as well. So going to be an awesome time this summer starting after the 4th of July. So, uh, you know, we're now coming into the last month here in preparation for it. So encourage everybody to sign up. Go to signumuniversity.org slash academy. Uh, we do have Baymoot coming up on August 18th. We're coming down uh, towards the deadline for the call for papers. So uh, uh, people who want to participate in that strongly urge you uh, to uh, reach out by email there. Again, go to signumuniversity.org slash events and you'll find the events page for Baymoot. Uh, and you can uh, see the link there for the um, for the call for papers. Uh, I'm also really looking forward. So we're going to have uh, an official semi-official uh, uh, film film event, uh, at, uh, Mythmoot this year. Uh, we're, we, we kind of did a little bit of it last year, but we're going to, we're going to do it more this year. So we're going to, we're going to do some, uh, we're going to have a session where we actually, where we actually write some stuff and then we're going to perform it later on. It's going to be really neat. Uh, so lots of really fun, uh, uh, film film stuff, uh, going to be happening at, uh, uh, at Mythmoot while we're all hanging out together this year. So I mean, I was excited to see that on the program. All right. So let's, uh, let's get back to the episodes here. So episodes 11 and 12, I started kind of talking some about both of those at the end of last time. Um, couple things I wanted to touch on, uh, in conjunction with these last few episodes. So can we talk about the vision of Feanor? A little bit. We didn't really talk about that last time, and I want to make sure we don't miss that because that's important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, tell me about what were sort of the, some of the main things that you guys were uh, really wanted to emphasize when you were thinking about the the uh, vision. Well, it's supposed to convey to the audience that this is a hopeless quest that he's 
been engaged in. Right. And the Doom of Mandos probably clued everybody into that, but <laughs> um, but up until this point, it's possible to view the story as Feanor's right, and all his naysayers just don't know how great and wonderful he is right. and powerful. That's and, certainly been his line. Right. Yeah. Uh, so his death scene kind of puts the final... Uh, nail in that coffin of saying that no, Feanor has been wrong all along. His rebellion was doomed from the start, and Morgoth is not a foe that he or his sons can defeat. Right. So we we kind of wanted to have that be a pretty strong feeling out of the out of the vision. Right. The hopelessness. Of the hopelessness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I like that. And we had. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, well, and we had to do it in a way that communicated it to the audience, but not to his sons, per se. Right. Um, because he right. certainly is not going to tell them, oh, by the way, I am so important to myself, I'm going to send all six of you to die. Right. Right. I agree. That is one of the most striking uh, elements, I think, of that moment in the story, that just, you know, with the eyes of death, he looks out on Thangarodrum and knows for certainty, you know, with the foretelling of death, that there's no way they can possibly defeat Morgoth. And his response to that is to make his sons, like, re-swear the oath and promise to keep trying what he knows to be impossible. Uh, that, I think, is it just... it so clearly shows the the madness of Feanor at this point. I mean, how, how, yeah, yeah. I mean, that combination I think is, is, uh, is really important. I love the visuals, the way you guys have done this, this whole sort of like large crown theme there of the visions, right? Uh, Feanor's crown, especially since of course, you know, we had the, uh, and you know the sort of the that climactic, uh, no, well, not climactic. That that final scene, right? The final visual of uh, Feanor with the crown at the end of season two. Yes, exactly. We wanted yeah. to make sure that didn't get lost in season three. So this vision is where that ties in. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. Love that. Um, and that the way that the. I, I, how you use the peaks of Thangorodrim as the sort of transitional point between the crown and the one crown and the other crown, right? Between his crown and, uh, and the iron crown, uh, with the three Silmarils. I think that that's really cool. I think that that works really well. Uh, even the suggestion, which I think, you know, we should follow up on that the visually Thangorodrim should kind of look like Morgoth's crown. You know, I mean, like there, there, there should be a, a non-coincidental similarity between uh, the three peaks of the Thangarodrum that he raises and the iron crown that he's wearing. Yeah, we can definitely uh, look at the uh, locations and see if any of them look like crowns. Sort of cra- or we can shoot them from a, an angle that makes them look like a crown. We may end up just doing a CGI Thangarodrum. I mean, or, and, yeah, and, you know, a CGI matte painting or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that we, I think that we, we might have to do that. But, um, but yeah, I mean, because it, it logically that even sort of makes sense, right? I mean, because it's not like Morgoth has to just do 
location scouting, right? I mean, he just makes them. I mean, he's made the mountains, and just as he made he made his own crown, presumably, and he made his own mountains, you know, as he's making his stronghold. So, um, you know, that he would make sort of both of them similar. And, and even, you know, in his mind, it's more than just symbolic, right? I mean, the the stronghold of Thangarodrim that he rears up um, is like, this is, that's, that's his crown, right? I mean, it's like literally above his head and, and, uh, you know, the sign of his power and authority. And, you know, so, um, it's not, it's not even actually like metaphorical. There's this, it's almost literally, uh, like a, another crown of his. Um, and the fact that it's, you know, enormous, you know, mountainous in size will, that is, still modest compared to Morgoth's own scope and certainly his own self-image, so. And there probably was a time where he could have made himself fit it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, so uh, so I, I love that connection uh, and uh, the juxtaposition with the Silmarils and everything. Um, uh, and and my, But my favorite touch is that, uh, is that last one, that uh, as, the, as the three... Silmarils uh, and the Iron Crown kind of fade out in his vision. The, you know, one, uh, like the central Silmaril, I, I would think it would be the central one probably, um, sort of drifts up, right? And uh, he sees it up in the air above him and reaches for it but can't touch it. I love that. Uh, the, the way that we get... Uh, my favorite element of that is, of course, we know that this is a sign of hope, right? He's being shown a sign of hope because it's an allusion to Eärendil and the star. Um, but of course it's out of his reach. And so what is meant to be a sign, what is a foreshadowing of this sign of hope for the world uh, is merely like, you know, to Fanor, he's like Tantalus, right? He can't reach it. Um so the juxtaposition of those two things, you know, how that, you know, a Silmaril placed as a sign of hope in the sky for everyone um, would seem like a kind of best case scenario, unless you're Feanor and just want to keep it to yourself. So like, you know, his own frustration of not being able to have it for himself and never being able to reach it outweighs any, uh, you know, it makes him totally miss the whole hope message associated with that, right? Uh, and I, I, I think that's good. both as a way of conveying his perspective and uh, and the, the kind of the, the dramatic irony involved of the, you know, the, the, the allusion up to uh, to Eärendil and, and Feanor not understanding it or, or and not, not liking it in as much as he does understand it, right? Um, all of those things I think are really, are really great. Loved that last thing. Cool. Glad you liked it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I think that works very, very well. I I also really um, like that imagery. Um, I'm I'm glad that the I like the uh, I like the final note being being a hint of the the hope. I was kind of hoping we would do something like that that we we wouldn't end just on the power of Thangaradram, but we would we would provide an image that for um, the savvy viewer they would realize. That this is that this is pointing to the final end, um, yes. you know, which is which is a hopeful, happy, and uh, ends in victory for the West. But that um, 
for maybe the but they would be at best ambiguous for the uninformed viewer mm-hmm. and that for uh for Feanor would not be a sign of hope it would right. be yeah uh, it would be a source of frustration for him so i yeah and i think i think the the silmarillion silmaril in the sky is like perfect i think you guys nailed it yeah that's that's just brilliant that's brilliant love it um his death the death of Feanor. Let's see, where's the death? I'm scrolling. Where did it go? Did I miss it? I missed it. Where did it go? Uh, no, I didn't miss it. Where's Where's his death? He's, still, he's taking this long to die? He's, he's, no, wait. He's grieving now. Where's his death? It's short. Is this why I missed it? Is it? Oh, it's at the end of that other section? It's just short. Yeah. One of the things that we had to, because there had been some discussion of having him burst in the flame in yeah. the middle of his son saying the oath. Yeah, oh, there the, it is. The problem is, would they just like they've never seen that happen before ever? <laughs> Nobody's ever seen and that seen happen people before. Die. Yeah, yeah. And they and they wouldn't. They like. There's no way they would just keep on talking over that. Like they would. They would have to stop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I totally agree. Yeah. No, that's something. It's you're not just going to carry on. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No. That. That. Yes. That's. I absolutely agree with you there. Um. Th- let's think for a second about the about the flames. I want to think about the visuals of Fanor's body bursting into flames because. There are a couple. Well, there are a bunch of challenges. With this is gonna, this is one of, I, I, this is another one of those things which is really awesome when you just say it right in a book. But when you actually have to show it, there are some implications that are tricky. I was right? gonna say, how do we do this so that the audience doesn't start laughing? Exactly. It could. It could look funny. Right, we have to be careful with that. But here's the other thing: spontaneous that, combustion. Right? Yeah, exactly. If it's too comical, a spontaneous combustion that's not good. Um, if we make like you know, he just like burst into like red sooty flames or something, um, it's going to look like the flames of hell consuming him. I mean, there's going to be associations with that that we don't want, right? You know, we don't want to associate it with like a Judeo-Christian hell. Um, we don't, as you pointed out in the outline, we don't want to associate it with the Balrog flames either. Um, I actually think there's an argument in favor of that to say that like, but again, yeah, because no, because we don't want to make it look like this is just the delayed action of like the Balrog's flaming whips or something like that. They have set a flame in him and like, he's been holding out against it. And that, so it's not that he's killed by the, you know, this is the 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 power of the Balrogs finally overwhelming him, or something like that. We need to show that the fire comes from him, right? That this is his oh, own that's, fire. Oh, I hadn't even considered that that fact that we need that it that it will it could be confusing visually for yeah. once again for sort of the uninformed viewer. They might think that the Balrogs killed him. Right. Exactly. Uh, but at the same time, we. We don't want to make it look like he is merely translated or something, you know. Like we don't like, it, for instance, I could imagine if we just have him like dying, and then there's like a flash of white light and his body is gone. That it, people are like, is he really dead? Like was he taken up by the Valar or something? You know, I mean, uh, we want it to be clear that he's dead. Um, and in a sense, it's a bad thing. 
um, that he's being. I'm trying to think if we have some kind of visual from before, like during the building of middle, right. you know, of and or I, I, but I can't think of anything that you know would connect. Because I think you're right. You know, it's like even though this is kind of a unique happening, you'd want to connect it in the reader's yeah. memory to maybe something. But I don't know what that something would be unless it's during Morgoth's fight. It's but it shouldn't even be a Morgoth thing because it's really no. not. No, I mean, it's in really terms of it's a fan, fan or thing. thing. Exactly. So there's. It seems to me, visually speaking, we have three. So if we're thinking of what are the Fanorian flames. Right, we have three options. We've got the sort of forge fires of his own forge that we've seen, you know, where, like where we see him working in fire. But that I think visually is not going to be very distinctive. Um, we have the light of the Silmarils, of course, but that's not really his light, so that wouldn't seem to work either. Um, the only other thing we have are the Feanorian lamps. Ruth was just thinking the same thing. We've got the Feanorian lamps, which are blue. If the flames which came and engulfed him are the blue flames of that are like the flames in the Feanorian lamps, it would definitely be different. Dave, I'm worried that it's going to look comical, like you were saying. Uh, blue fire kind of looks funny. I, I'm thinking of like uh, screen Eighties. adaptations of Dracula, where they do the blue flame <laughs> thing, and it always looks funny. Always, I've never seen that not look just dumb on screen when they do the blue flames from Dracula. So I, I don't know. Uh, I'm I'm thinking about it increasingly. I guess I'm I'm maybe less concerned on second thought because I think. I think it has to do with sort of the presentation of his of his death. Like I think I think there's a way in which this kind of just looks like say Darth Vader's funeral pyre, right? Like he's if he's kinda of lying on a beer of some kind and then he sort of you know, we do sort of a recognizable passing away moment and then the flame he doesn't immediately burst into flames or spread into dust, but kind of the the flames kind of you know, come up slowly such that like, you know, subconsciously people might sort of interpret it as somebody's actually setting the flames. I, I think it can work. And I think the idea of connecting these flames with some very recognizable kind you know, sort of special flame from earlier in the in the series, I think that will help a lot too. So it's clearly not ordinary fire. Right. What are your thoughts it's on, doable. on the idea of the blue flames, Dave? You think that would work? I, I'm fine. I'm fine with that. I don't. I'm not particularly flames? troubled by those. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I I don't know I, that this is a. Th- oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. You, you first. <laughs> I don't know that this is. This is kind of a reach to make it a parallel, but for some reason I flashed on, you know, Saruman's death and his and his was wind, right? His was like right spirit and wind i mean this is kind of in that same theme and i'm not sure that that contributes anything to the conversation right oh. no we, and, we actually talked about that when we were working this out yeah okay because what we do have is that it is a wind comes out of the east and blows his ashes that are left behind. ah got it got it got it got it, got it. right the way that we indicate that he hasn't been translated is that his ashes are left behind Right. Um, as far as as far as avoiding comedy, I think it, that's going to be in the 
that's that's a job for the actors uh, to make sure that doesn't happen. Because right. usually the line between comedy and and seriousness isn't just it isn't it isn't just what happens. It's how people react to it and how they're emoting at the time. Um, so I mean we we we've cast I mean we haven't cast the the sons of Feyenoord yet, but um, Richard Armitage I 100% believe can you know be convincing as I'm dying and it's not funny. Right, um, <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm dying and it's not funny. Yeah, that's. that's it seems like a absurd thing to have to say, but try to do a non-comical death, death, Richard. Come on. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, no. It's it. Well, if you think about some of the things, like, and don't do it in slow mo because, like, for example, when Frodo wakes up in in the the Return of the King film, when Frodo wakes up after he's been rescued from mm-hmm. the Mount Doom, and he sees Gandalf, like, that whole reaction, after you've watched it a couple of times, it invites you to laugh at it. Right. Um, right. Just because it's, like, it's slowed down to the absurd. Yeah. Now, this may be aided by the fact that my um, my uh, cousin, who um, who's on the spectrum, has watched and rewatched that moment over and over and over and over again, he'll just rewind it to the point where he where he wakes up and watch it and then rewind it to that point again. <laughs> that may have helped in my right. <laughs> to render it absurd in your in in your mind. Yeah, yeah. You know, I just gotta say to to you know to Phil's point about Richard Arm. I mean, Nick's point. Phil, hello, Phil. Um, Next point, I'm really, I'm really glad that we did not decide on Weird Al Yankovic for Fanor. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> you know now is the time, right? Right, right. <laughs> That's true. That would not have gone very far towards no. our goal of not making this. That comical. would not. Have. No, that would not. No, that would not. Hey, wait, does that mean we can cast Weird Al Yankovic somewhere else, though? Does he have an IMDb page? I'm sure he does. Oh, yeah. Of course he does. Our requirements are that they be living and have an IMDb page. So if so... He has to be a bard. He has to be a minstrel of some kind. Oh, man. Right? Yeah, I would almost insist on Weird Al Yankovic being somewhere. (laughs) That's got to happen. But... uh, Make him a dwarf. Make him a dwarf. (laughs) Phil Boswell wants to cast him as Tom Bombadil. (laughs) 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 He doesn't have quite the right build. No, he doesn't. um... He doesn't. Uh, and I, I just I can't see. Yeah. I have to build play Tom Bombadil, no problem. But uh... <laughs> yeah, he's actually got a pretty elvish physique. He's very thin and yes. super pale. And that's true. That yeah, Willowy, and a heck of a lot better looking than all of his artwork depicts him as. Yes, true. That's, yes, like in true. person, he actually looks decent. Um, yeah. on his album covers, so much. <laughs> right. Oh, he's always like deliber- like the camera angles are d- deliberately to make him yes. look ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah. Time to launch yeah. a Twitter campaign to get him cast as young Aragorn. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking. I was thinking Elrond. Elrond. In, in the show. In the also show. excellent. Yeah. No. 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 <laughs> Oh, I mean, I, I, I love Weird Al as much as anybody, but I, we, no, not Elrond, I don't think. Uh, 
but it, but young Aragorn maybe. No. First of all, he's like see, see he's what like a contribution I so make no. to the conversation would take us totally off course. Yeah, Yay! exactly. So back to the flames. Back to the flames. Um, I did have a comment earlier. Yes, let's go back um, to the flames. So we will have seen Feanor holding the Silmarils in his hand, which means the light welling through the skin uh-huh, will uh-huh. will have been an image that we've used at some point. We would be able to show light glowing from him before we show the body burst into flames that would tie to that image without yes. being uh, the light of the Silmaril is like setting him on fire. Right. If, right. if we wanted to avoid blue flames, um, we could do that because the light through your hand looks much redder yes. because it's going through your skin. Yes. Yes. Um, no, I like that. I mean, the thing that we do have to emphasize in this, Dave, this is where I, I actually would want to make sure that we didn't have it look like they were setting him on fire. Because, again, if if we're going to do this, the reason we're the reason to do it, right, the reason having burst into flames at all is in order to show the thing that Tolkien depicts, which is unique among all elf deaths ever recorded, which is that his spirit being, you know, the, the fiery spirit within him, when it leaves his body, burns the body to ash. So, like, it is the fieriness of his spirit. Um, he would die cursing, right? Like, the cursing of Morgoth that he's doing, he, he would be... He would... Uh, I think that... I. I would want to move that. Like you guys had the cursing and then the re- the repetition of the oath. I would want to have them repeating the oath and then him curse Morgoth and die as he's cursing Morgoth. So, you know, uh, okay. he, he curses Morgoth by something and then curses Morgoth by something. I, I do think he should curse him three times. Not that he has to repeat the same words three times. He can curse him in three different ways. You know, like... Um, uh, he can curse him by one thing and another thing and another thing. And then, you know, and then just like... Uh, yell basically, you know. I could just see, you know, he's he's angry. He dies mad, you know. He dies angry, and his spirit, as it his fiery spirit, as it emerges from him, uh, 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 you know, sets fire to his spirit. But I love that. Um, I love that um, that image, you know, Maria, of like the the light, and the, the capturing that light, f- you know, fr- from his hand. The idea of that kind of glowing through his body, and then as it kind of bursts out, I could see there being, you know, a flash of maybe a couple seconds of flame, uh, like the white, you know, the, the it's. It, it starts with a white light and then the, and then like sort of dies into blue flames and then falls into ashes that I, that I think could work. Um, uh, Tim is talking about uh, seeing the fire kind of start in his eyes and, and show him being in pain. Like the, like the, 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 you know, the, the light and the fire that's coming out of him should be, he should be in anger and pain as he dies. That's would that seems to fit to me as well. Um, Can you think of anything where a figure um, visibly bursts into flame from the inside and is clearly in pain in doing so. Is this a supernatural reference? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Every ghost uh, ever. <laughs> well, I was thinking more angel possession for the glowing white light. Yeah. Um, yeah. But usually they don't die in pain. But anyway, that's usually another. Don't die in pain, See, yeah. I just, I just showed my, I just showed my age. I was going back to. Um, Oh crap! What's the one about the three sister witches? The witch? Oh, the witches of Eastwood. The three sisters charmed? in San Francisco. Charmed. charmed. Yeah, I was thinking they're... charmed. Yeah, there were plenty of people that burned up from the inside on that show. One they're <laughs> ill-advisedly rebooting. 
Uh, are they really? Are they really? Oh God! What is with rebooting? Yeah. What is the thing? We Nobody has imagination anymore. We don't have to do a podcast on that, do we? No. No. No, no one ever has any original ideas. They Unless just reboot existing things. Really? No kidding. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> Except for us, no one's done this before. Exactly. That's true. Exactly. That's true. Okay. Well, good. I think that that can all that can all, and this is all going to add to the. Sh- I mean, thinking of the shock of. Fan or sons, right? Um, shocked that he's dead. Like, I can't believe he's actually dead. I mean, and I like how this scene begins with somebody trying to heal him, right? Because they all assume, like, yeah, he got beat up. He's in a he's in a bad way. But it's not like you could just kill Fanor. It's not like Fanor's just going to die, right? Uh, and then, so it's not just the fact that he's, di- you know, so, like, just they're just, like, standing there staring at his body as it, you know, bursts into flame and then collapse into, collapses into ash, uh, which gets blown away and, and that, you know, they... It, yeah, that 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 would be. Uh, I actually think it should be a really powerful scene, coming as it does in the middle of episode eleven out of thirteen of season three. Uh, I kind of love that. And the, all right, okay, cool. I wanted, yeah, I want, I want to re- re- review the visuals there and uh, uh, and 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 go through that. Um, by the way, I really like Diron's music and the spiders. Uh, you know how all of that works uh, visually. Again, how are we thinking of representing? Are we we're, are we going to be visually representing light surrounding him? So as he's singing of light uh, and making his music, we have him surrounded by like a globe of light that the spiders can't get in. Is that how we're thinking of doing that? I would think that what might be a little bit easier is if the light is coming off him in waves that are projected towards the the spiders. Okay. Um, because this way he, he's able he's able to do more than just protect his own self. Protect himself. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. And. And we can have a, you know, we can definitely show a sort of frontier, right? As it, as the, his, the light from his song comes out. I mean, I have to be a little bit careful not to make it, not to over physicalize it, right? But, uh, but of course the, the awkwardness here is that the webs of the spider, the webs of the spiders are still dark. These are the children of Ungoliant, right? So the webs, their webs are unlight and, um, uh, you know, they, their relationship with light is, I mean, they eat it, right? So the, they're, they're not just automatically repelled by light. Uh, in, in this case, I think the, the light is more a visual representation of yeah. his own will. Like, when, when you play video games, and like, for example, when you play, play Lotro, and there's magical effects, Yeah. all right? Yes, you're seeing them on the screen, but they're... Like, if you were actually there and that was actually happening, you wouldn't actually see anything. Right, right, right. Right, there's kind of like this weird, like, given that nobody really thinks about, but it's kind of there that a lot of these effects are just so that you can see something. Well, it's exactly, it's one of the challenges, right? I mean, uh, one of the challenges of visual adaptation of especially Tolkien's magic, which is so often non-visual in its effect. Um, Yeah, yeah. Just to have him singing and them not attacking him because he's singing, right? And not have any visual, as you say, any visual uh, representation of that, um, of the effect of his magic would be hard. Would be I, I think that would that would look strange. Like just for some reason they're choosing not to attack him, right? Which is not, uh, you know. I don't know. You know, 
if I think if we cast Weird Al as Dyrod, that maybe he's <laughs> repelling them with the power of polka. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and, uh, <laughs> oh, I think I have another Bob way going on here. Sorry, guys. Uh, and here's a, here's a reference for you, Corey. Yeah. And the reason for that is because Polka never dies. Polka never dies. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Polka never dies. It just goes off wandering the world uh, uh, looking for Luthien, basically. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay. That's good. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, Tim Fisher reminds us that, of course, the, the musical score will con- convey a lot of this, right? I mean, the power of Dairon's music is something that, you know, that, that is going to rely very heavily uh, on the musical score, um, which I think would be rendered all the more effective by having it be primarily polka-based. So that's... Uh, Perfect sense. Um, Okay. Don't you dare, Phil. And we're not, just to clarify, we are not serious about that, Phil. Not that I think that Phil would take that seriously. But um, anyway, yeah. So, um, and no, uh, Phil, there is no plans to include a zombie Tyrannosaurus Rex among the beasts of ivory and horn. Um, So... Anyway, moving on. <laughs> moving on. Sorry, for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, we're now making Dresden Files references. Uh, uh, fr- Jim Butcher's Dresden Files uh, is the polka thing, and uh, polka will never yep. die. And yeah, just. And for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, shame on you. <laughs> shame on you. Yeah. I Although, know, really. What? You you should have read them, but one can forgive you for having lost your enthusiasm at this point. <laughs> no way, man. Speaking of which, the uh, giving uh, the long wait for the next one. Yeah, peace talks is being rather delayed. But the new uh, the new volume of collected uh, short stories just came out. Yeah, yeah, I haven't read it yet. Me neither. And for the Lotro players, for the Lotro players among us, I have a lore master named Dresden who's got a kinship called Stars and Stones and a bog lurker named Butters. <laughs> That's right. Fantastic. All right. That's to go with Polka Never Dies. I love Dies. the idea that Butters is a bog lurker. I know. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so, in the interest of having any time to do sets today, oh, yep, we're yep, totally yep, fine. So, I only have one more thing that I wanted to talk about on episode 11, and that is. Uh, I want to. I wanted to review where the Valar, the Valar's reasons. There it is. The reasons for not intervening militarily uh, when the during the Council of the Valar, um, because some of these I like and some of these I don't. Um, the obviously the time is not yet right is one that's like the least satisfying one, but also kind of the obviously most important one, really, um, despite or because the, the fact that it's not that it's not satisfying. But that that I think has to be really prominent. Um, the second the awakening of the second children, that's also a very, very central argument, right, that uh, that w- the the war of the powers, a second war of the powers here could destroy the second uh, children before they have a chance to even awaken or as they're awakening. Um the uh, and that that's of course then done in conjunction with the Valar can't defeat him without destroying uh, you know possibly all of Arda maybe at least a continent. 
I love the, and I would want to lay great stress on the free will argument, respecting the free will of the Noldor who demand to fight Melkor without aid, that they have chosen to do this. Um, yes, we sh- I mean, now, like, the counter-argument to that, which I think would, like, Yavanna would probably lead, um, would be, um, yeah, but Melkor is messing with a lot of things that did not choose to fight him. Right. Uh, you know, why should we abandon all of Middle Earth, um, you know, and, and, and leave Melkor to wreak havoc upon all of Middle Earth just because the Noldor want to fight him? Right. That's not that doesn't really make that certainly would not make sense to Yavanna. Um, but uh, but certainly the idea of not intervening, you know, not coming and helping the Noldor, not out of like pettiness or spite against the Noldor. um but in order to respect their free will, I really, I really like, I mean, I think that that, that, that element should definitely be present though. I don't think that that's enough on its own to justify them not just coming and mopping up, you know, taking Melkor back into custody essentially, um, since he escaped from them and defied them. The, one of the arguments I was, uh, less comfortable with, it's true and it might be worth having them explain, it so that we get this idea out there um, is this the one about Morgoth using himself up and weakening himself um, the problem here uh, so again we're not going to be talking about this is a golden opportunity to drop that idea into exposition <laughs> so I agree that it would be kind of nice to mention that there the thing that I would want to be cautious of though it's not like the Valar need that like they can take him right um they Just can... not without massive collateral damage. Right, exactly. Um, so, so if we do have them, um, if we do have them raising this argument and talking about Morgoth weakening, weakening himself, we just need to make sure that they are not making it sound like, you know. We're worried that we might not win if we attack him now. We need to wait until he's weaker. Like, they, they took him before. They could take him again. Um, but it might it might hurt the world less if they uh, do it when he's, when he's weaker. But see, even there, like, okay, so let's let him destroy the world for a long time. And then the world will be destroyed less when we... I mean, that, that's, uh, you know, kind of, uh, kind of tricky. So, uh, so yeah, we, right. we, we, do, we do need to make sure that it's not out of weakness, essentially, that they're worried about his power. Right, yeah. so it's okay for them to express that idea, but not to use it as a reason to delay. Right, exactly, because I don't like, think it would be a reason, not in itself, as a reason right. to delay. Right, like, if they're going to delay anyway, right. added bonus, he'll be weaker when we do fight him. Yeah, and they could even bring it up in that, like, somebody like uh, like Varda could bring it up in that context, right, to say, you know, when they say they're not going to attack right away, then she can say, you know, and as time goes by, he he shall be weaker and weaker, uh, you know, as he continues to disperse himself. So, yeah. Well, um, essentially, the like the main the main reason why they don't do it is because, like, in order the amount of power they'd have to bring to bear on it, they've got at least three people with them who can create an extinction level event. <laughs> Yeah, like, yes, sir. I just love the application of that phrase in a Silmarillion context. Yes. Uh-huh. I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. Well, so, you know, if if Omo, Aule, or Manwe 
go to town on on this guy or Varda, who can probably yeah. bring you know meteors down from the sky. As a matter of fact, I think that we did have her doing that in the Battle of the War of the Powers. Um, so like that or that ability exists, and in order to take Melkor and all the forces he's gathered to himself down at this point, they would kind of have to do that. You know, whereas when they come in in the War of Wrath, they're mostly dealing with his mortal army. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, um, yeah, no, I, 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 I agreed. I mean, it, it makes sense that they don't, especially now, back in the old days, you know, at the end of season one, it was only the elves, and the elves were, uh, uh, you know, localized only in the way, you know, they were out at Quivienne and so they could set a guard on them and, 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 you know, have more or less free reign. Though again, Yovana would disagree that there was nobody else to be hurt. Um, however, yeah, it's just, it's a totally different situation now and they don't want to, the collateral damage is the, I agree is the primary argument against them attacking Melkor right now. Um, and you know, and in that context, the second, the, the awakening of the second children needs to be, uh, mentioned. Uh, and then again, yeah, Varda can say like the time will come when the hour is right, uh, as Morgoth weakens himself, uh, over the years. Um, that makes perfectly sen- perfectly good sense. Now, uh, Hakan brings up and he's right to say, we need to make sure that the Silmarils get talked about, um, of course, it's not about not intervening, but we need to make sure that that's a really important context for the like the people who are arguing. I would think, like Tolkas, for instance, would uh, be strong in the arguments in favor of intervening, right? Like, uh, you know, this whole thing could begin with people like Tolkas and probably Orome um, uh, saying, "We need to go." You know, it's time for it. We know where he is. Right. We tried to catch him and he escaped. We know where he is now. We're going to go get him. Right. That's what happens next, obviously. Um, uh, you know, Tolkas can be thinking of that in relatively simple terms like that. And then somebody, Aule, maybe, uh, or maybe even um, somebody like Vana or somebody like that should be expressing like in the Silmarils. Right. The light of the trees now lives only. Uh, in the Silmarils, surely we must recover those, right? Um, so, uh, um, I'm thinking... No, Vana- I think that if she does say that, somebody could say, that they are, uh, are they ours to recover at our will? Right, right. Because they're kind of not. Like, it, like yes, they do. Like, the light originates from them, obviously. Right. But the reason why they asked Feanor in the first place was because they aren't theirs to just take. Right. If somebody is is talking about recovering the Simrils, then somebody else is going to have to bring that up. Well, yeah. And it's, and it's, it's interesting, right? Because I mean, here's Fanor saying the, you can't trust the Valar because they want the Silmarils for themselves. Right. And so, yeah, we don't want to show that his words are totally true, but I think it's absolutely fine for us to show that his words have some justification, right? That that he's not, you know, it's not oh, totally out of nowhere. 
they absolutely do want them. <laughs> like, right. There's no question they right. want them. It's just a question of whether they feel like it's right to take them. Yeah. Is yeah the issue. Right. Exactly. But they should. They're definitely. They're definitely a a. Uh, you know, high on the list of why we should intervene now and go and recover more, you know, uh, Melkor, you know, reincarcerate Melkor. Um, and I was suggesting Vana for that role because if I'm remembering correctly, in the earlier Silmarillion, like in the 19th, uh, in the 1937 Quenta, um, Vana is the one who is like, she's the. She's the one who kind of like flips out with the at the darkening of Valinor. She's the one who uh, isn't she the one who wastes it all? Like the 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 extra light, like the pools of light, Ungoliant doesn't drink them all at first, and she like dumps them on the mound uh, in order to try to r- recuperate the trees. And everyone's like, "Stop! What are you doing?" Anyway, so she like, kind of screws it up. But the point is, she is the one who is like super focused and obsessed about. Uh, uh, trying to restore the trees and everything, so uh, we're not going to put her in that role. This, I mean, even even uh, Tolkien in later revisions uh, toned that down a very great deal. But just sort of recalling that she was uh, placed in that role, and we don't give her many roles that would seem to be an opportunity. But yeah, and I mean, she's Yvonne's sister, so if right. Yvonne's concerned about the trees, her desire to save the trees kind of makes it a family thing. Right, exactly. Whereas Yovana, in this debate, the whether or not to reinvade Middle-earth debate, she's going to be anti, right? Because she's thinking about the living creatures of Middle-earth. Whereas Vana being, you know, would also be kind of reflecting the other side of that, right? She'd be focused on the trees and the light of the trees. Um, mm-hmm. With which Yovana would agree, but she, but Vana does not have the same attachment as Yovana does to the living creatures of Middle-earth. So it would it would be a way of kind of giving the Yavana perspective on both sides, essentially without having Yavana just look wishy-washy. Um, okay, cool. Good. That's it. I just want that's what I wanted to emphasize there. So I'm good. I'm good on episode 11. We talked about the other stuff, uh, before, uh, uh, we didn't talk about the Aurora Borealis, but I'm fine with the Aurora Borealis. The point of it is that it's, it's granting hope and light and guidance to the, to the, so to just making things easier for the uh, for the 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 Noldor. Uh, it's a, it's yeah, it's lighting, which is a, a bonus in this season. But yeah. it's also yeah, hope, and you have not been abandoned completely. Someone is still thinking about you and caring about you yes. from a distance. Yeah, in a not they're entirely putting, practical way. <laughs> yeah, they're putting their bow in the sky, as it were. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. I like that. I like that. Um. Okay, cool. Good. All right. I'm good with episode 11. Any last thoughts on episode 11 from anybody else? Okay, episode 12. Episode 12, then. I only have a few things from episode 12. Um, The planning of the parley. I know this was one of the things that you guys were thinking about in specific one of the questions you guys had mentioned before was how duplicitous do we want to make the sons of Feanor as they go in? Yes, there was some debate on the board back and forth as to where we wanted them to start. Because we know where we want them to end up as characters. Right. Like Curfin being duplicitous, so we'll surprise no one five <laughs> seasons from now. Right. Right. But but yeah, but now where do we want them to begin in their war with Morgoth? Well, I mean, 
I don't really see this as... I mean, I guess technically there's a little duplicity involved in the sense that they're like, you know, they, they come with more people than they say they're going to bring. So that's technically duplicitous. But it's not like there's betrayal or underhanded dealing here exactly, right? I mean, there's... Well, there could be. I mean, we could we could set up in a whole elaborate um, ambush. Right. Ambush and counter ambush. Right. Right. Where they could have said all sorts of things that aren't true and then do something completely different. You know, like we have opportunities here to make it more explicitly duplicitous if that's desired. So so I mean, the the book makes it pretty, pretty clear that. Because um, basically, what it says is that Mithros convinced that it convinced his brothers to feign to treat with with Morgoth. Yes. Um, so to pretend that they were going to negotiate with him, which implies that they are not actually going to negotiate. Right. And uh, my thought on that has always been simply like simply that they he does not believe that it's there's any treating going on, right? So he's pretending to go along with it, knowing that it's not going to happen. You know, I mean, at least that, that's how I've always, that's how I've always pictured that going down. Not that Mithros is necessarily saying, and now it is time for a devious stratagem by which we lure them into, like, he's not doing any luring, right? The, uh, he's expecting it to be a double cross. Exactly. He's expecting a double cross all along. And is planning to double cross the double cross, or always to protect himself against the double cross um, by doing things that, uh, by, by preparing for this in a way that, you know, his enemy doesn't expect. So again, yes, that's technically duplicitous, but it's not like he's the one, you know, undertaking a devious plan. Exactly. He's just being... Not stupid, basically, in his preparations. I, I personally wanted to avoid any chopping off the head of the mouth of Sauron kind of scene. Yes, where yes. there was something that would have been clearly out of bounds. Yes. But other people were asking that there be clear indication that you can't trust the sons of Feanor in how they act in this scene. Right. The I agree. Well, I guess my thought about that is, Yes, you can't trust the sons of Feanor generally. Um, a, I think the kinslaying has already kind of laid the foundations for that, but uh, and not to mention the burning of the ships. By now, it's fairly clear that you can't trust the sons of Feanor, and we'll have plenty of opportunities to reinforce that point of view later on. But here, because we're talking about dealing with Morgoth and Sauron, it's not really about trust. I mean, like, so what? They're going to... In fact, it would be weird, frankly, if... They were all like standing on their honor and everything now, again, you know, in going into this obvious trap that that Morgoth is setting for them. That would just seem kind of weird. Like we're willing to slay our kin, we're willing to betray Fingolfin and burn the ships, but but when it comes to you know engaging in an obviously ill-intentioned trap uh, by Morgoth, we're going to scrupulously you know make sure our word is our bond. Like that just doesn't even make much sense, actually. You know, in those circumstances, if 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 we're going to show them 
turning over a new leaf and being honorable to their word and totally trustworthy would be turning over a new leaf at this point. Not, not, you know, it's establishing a new thing, not, not, not uh, holding to an old. Um, Now would not be the time to do it, right? It wouldn't even make any sense for them to want to at this point. And yet at the end of the day, what's really interesting is that Sauron is more, Follows the spirit, not, follows the letter of the deal more closely than they do. Well, no, he doesn't because he he, well, doubled... he brings no Balrogs. He brings zero Balrogs. But he double double crosses them by, by. I mean, yes, he follows he follows that, but he doesn't bring a Silmaril. He doesn't offer a Silmaril. He That's says true. that he would give That's... them a Silmaril, and he doesn't. So he is betraying the whole point of the core of it, uh, while like getting around the. No, but I but I like the fact how you guys have. Sauron coming and accusing, well, Thorin Guetho on behalf of Sauron coming and be- accusing the Feanorians of of uh, of of bad faith. That I really like because, of course, that's technically true. Even though Mithros was less duplicitous in the end than than Sauron um, and Marie, I do though I do appreciate the point. We want to make Mithros look good here, right? You know his. His actions should be noble. We um, want people to want him rescued. Yes, yes. And we do need to establish, as we've already begun establishing, that uh, Mithros is, re- is like the good egg among the Feanorians, right? We've already, we've already laid the groundwork for that. We started laying the groundwork for that in his friendship with Fingon. Uh, we... Uh, for a second, I thought I said the wrong name, but I didn't. Yes, with his his fr- his friendship with Fingen, we um, uh, you know, you're talking about the Silmarillion when like you think you made a mistake, uh, mistook one F name for another, and then you realized you accidentally didn't. Um, anyway, uh, so yes, we so we started that with his friendship with Fingen, and then of course with the, his standing aside at the burning of the ships. So his distance from that kind of the the treachery and duplicity which is has become now uh, though again it's not just about duplicity in the sense of we have no honor of any kind and we just enjoy stabbing people in the back the whole point of both the kinslaying and the burning of the ships is the objective is so important it outweighs everything else right we are willing to sacrifice anything you know Feanor is willing to sacrifice anything for the sake of his goal recovering the Silmarils all right so that's more important than anybody else keeping their word too right exactly yeah their oath exactly exactly um so uh with so with mithros what we're showing with him the 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 way that he fits into that system then is that he already as i said in his friendship with fingen uh and then even more in his later decision he's showing he's not willing to follow the goal at that cost, right? It's not that he doesn't follow the goal. It's not that he's not generally on board with warring against Melkor and recovering the Silmarils. He is on board with that. The main thing that he differs with his father about is he's not willing to do that at any cost. He, 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 um, not yet anyway, not yet anyway. There are things that he will not do, uh, in order to pursue that goal. Um, so yeah, I, I, um, showing him 
willing, uh, the way that he goes into this parley sort of self-sacrificially, anyway, knowing the danger, knowing the likelihood that he's going to be double-crossed and willing to put himself for the sake of the possibility of getting a Silmarill, um, that I think is is kind of a good move, right? Because in, in a sense, that's a that's a, a sort of an un-Feanorian thing to do, right? Um, Feanor, Feanor probably would have gone uh, but he would have done it for a different reason and in a different attitude um, than Mithros is going to. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I like that. So I would say he doesn't have to... Uh, he, he will come with more strength. I like the idea of there being um, him kind of bringing some concealed troops that he you know, always, that he attempts to conceal, um, j- which is just he's bringing backup. Because he believes he's going to be double crossed, which he is, um, and then uh, Sauron double double crosses him. So, uh, and 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 I did like how that worked with the trolls and and uh, uh, and the the song contest. Let's talk about the song contest for a second. Sauron singing. Um, the idea of Sauron kind of singing in harmony with himself is kind of awesome in the sense of him like. Uh, like doing something that is like musically really ornate and intricate. Um, But I'm not sure about the harmony though. Uh, Because remember harmony is the thing that the music of Morgoth doesn't have. I'm not saying that no music, no evil music can ever be harmonious. Uh, It is interesting that he's harmonizing with himself so that it's still a solo, but it's a solo that's also like I am making my own harmony is kind of I got I I kind of like it. Uh, I'm I'm just I'm not I guess I'm not 100 percent convinced, but uh, okay. so so this was uh, Hakan's idea. Um, He he was the one who came up with that. And since I mean, I would agree with you that Morgoth couldn't do something like this right now. Right. Because he just doesn't have it in him to create that kind of music. Right. But Sauron, we're depicting in a very gradual, slow slide into evil, where he's yes. he's yes. not 100% fallen yet. He can still change his shape. He still has powers of music. Like He has some of like the good guy abilities at yes. his disposal because yes. he's not 100% He's not completely. Fallen. He's not over yet. Yeah. 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 Like, not completely. I mean, he's obviously bad, but not. Yeah. He's not irredeemably bad yet. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Uh, Establishing a distinction between between Sauron and Morgoth in that way does make sense to me. Um, Okay. No, I like it. I like it. And the the way in which we are showing this provides us an interesting opportunity, the sort of paralysis, you know, the imprisonment of Mithros by his song. Um, it gives us an interesting opportunity to show a physical effect of his song without having to do a light show. Right. So I kind of like that. Um, is Mithers going to sing? We were not thinking so. No. Okay. I think that if he did, it would kind of distract from, like, I think he's too much in shock. Right. And S- Sauron sets him up in a way so that, he watches his his guys getting murdered. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. I don't. I suppose he could try to start, and then his voice just tapers out pretty quickly. I mean, we we could have him attempt to fight back, but right. obviously it's Finrod who's going to have the song duel with Sauron, so we don't want to let Mithras have too much here. <laughs> right. Well, but, right. Uh, um. 
Yes. I'm just thinking of uh, not exactly just setting that up, but um, and I agree this would not be the epic duel that we would get that we're going to get between Finrod and, and Sauron. I'm just uh, like it might be kind of cool to establish that that's a thing, you know, that like when in this situation and like the, you know, Sauron is using his music to, uh, you know, using his song to assert his will over uh, Mithros to sort of just show that Mithros, like the response to that, like what you do when that happens is to, you know, sing your own song in order to reassert your will. Um, Although it's totally believable, but Mithros doesn't know that that's what he's supposed to do. Right. Right. Um, You could try. I mean, it's it's, it's an issue of teaching the audience these things. Exactly. That's what I'm thinking. Figuring out whether or not Mithros knows. Um, Because, um, are we going to get any other opportunities? I think this is the last confrontation Finrod... with Sauron before Finrod, isn't it? Yeah, I don't, I don't think Sauron currently has any other roles in the story until we get to the Luthien story, unless we want to give him one. Which we probably will. Um, I mean, obviously, um, Sauron... Yeah, Sauron was basically a Baron and Luthien character, right? Uh, originally, so um, uh, we're going to... I assume we're going to be uh, inserting him in various other places. Um, right. I mean, he's going to get that tower in the first place. Yeah. So that's against Oradreth, I guess, is holding the tower when that happens. Yeah. Is that the case? Yeah. So we have the opportunity for Sauron versus Oradreth. Right. To sort of begin to establish that. Okay. Also, yeah, well, that's true. Also, I think that even if this was the only time that this was done, and Mithros didn't didn't utter a single note. That that's still enough setup for when Finrod and and uh, Sauron have their uh, their epic rap battle of destiny. Right. Uh, that like the audience will understand what's going on because we've already kind of set this up. Right. This just one on one and the the assertion of will and power through song. Um, right, and, and in fact, we have we kind of have to see it working before we can understand what it is that Finrod's defending against. Too. Right, right. Okay, yeah, yeah. All right, that's fine. That's fine. Um, all right, that's all I had on that. Anybody else had anything they wanted to ask or talk about concerning the Parley or Sauron or any of those things? No, looks solid and well executed to me. Cool. Um, One of the things that I've been really enjoying is um, as we've been doing the War of the Ring uh, in the Mythgard Academy over the last uh, few weeks, um, I had forgotten when we were talking about this before, actually, that in the early drafts, the mouth, the part of the mouth of Sauron in the Lord of the Rings was played by Sauron himself. Like originally, this was a confrontation. Like Sauron comes out, and Gandalf confronts Sauron uh, in that debate. You know, th- so that moment is actually a confrontation between Gandalf and Sauron directly. Um, and then Sauron's part is, you know, then Sauron doesn't come out, and his part is played by. It, originally, it's the Witch King specially resurrected for this purpose. That is to say, like, he chose to not have the Witch King die at the Battle of Pelennor Field specifically so that he could serve as the spokesperson there in the parley. Um, uh, 
which seems like a, a sad reason to deprive Eowyn of her moment. Uh, but anyway, um, I just like the fact that Sauron was originally the mouth of Sauron. So, you know, having Sauron come out and be the spokesperson here uh, for Melkor, not only do we have the, you know, the, the sort of the obvious parallel with the mouth of Sauron and Sauron himself having served earlier as the mouth of, of Morgoth, but, uh, uh, but the way that it recapitulates like Sauron actually coming out and, and talking with him, like he's actually in an earlier draft performed this role before. So, um, so it's kind of fun. Um, okay. Two other issues I had uh, that I wanted to talk about in episode 12. Um, one each for the uh, uh, the Doriath uh, plotline and the um, uh, the Helkaraxa plotline. Let me bring up the girdle thing first, mostly because here I am. Uh, right on this, uh, on my screen, I already have the, uh, section on the making of the girdle. Uh, my only suggestion about that, I love, I, I love your description of the girdle, how you're not having the girdle be white light, uh, but waves of twilight shadow and grayness and like this sort of heat shimmer effect, um, of hazy distortion. I agree. It's, I mean, we want to make it striking. We want to make it visible. We want to be able to show that effect, but not having it be like white light, I think, is a really clever idea. I really like that. Um, it's going to be a little bit challenging to have like the dark shadow of the spiders be driven back by the like gray shadow of the girdle. You know, I mean, white light is an obvious go-to here, right? To contrast with the blackness and the shadow and the the unlight of the spiders. Um, so having it be this sort of twilight shadow and grayness as you guys are describing it is kind of a bold move visually. Uh, but I like it. I think that that could work really well. Um, uh, so I, 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 I think that's really good. Um, my suggestion, just a little visual suggestion that I had is Melian coming out. Um, I would like to have Melian be, so you guys had Melian coming out onto a, onto a balcony of some sort, um, overseeing this, I would love to have her come in at the point of battle. So here's, here's kind of how I'm picturing it. The spiders, no one's able to do anything with the spiders, right? Dyron's able to hold, kind of hold them back, uh, a little bit, but no one's been able to, to really hurt the spiders and they're making their inexorable way into Menegroth, right? They've come in through the gates. There's this inner portcullis that you guys have, which I kind of like, um, so, and it looks like they're going to get through this portcullis at any second. Um, uh, and, and Dairon is there. So here, here's the scene as I was imagining it, right? We've got what looks like the, the, the final peril of the portcullis and they don't know how to stop the spiders. Dairon is there and he is playing and singing. Um, I'm imagining then Luthien comes and stands next to him and she also sings. And the, uh, the light, the, you know, the sort of the, 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 the visual effects of their song is, is holding, maybe pushes the spiders back from the portcullis, not far, but a little bit back is there, you know, and there, but, but what, what we're seeing is them all kind of pushing against it and ready to come. Like it's obvious it's not defeating them. It's not driving them away. It's just pushing them back and they're ready to come through. And then Melian walks up behind them and she lifts the portcullis 
and the, so, so the portcullis comes up. So the spiders are just right there. So there's Dairon and Luthien standing in the wall of spiders, ready to just pile in and nothing in between them. And Melian walks straight down the middle towards them and she begins singing. So, and the effect of her song initially is like, just looks like a sort of an upgrade from, you know, it's almost as if she's joining her music to Dairon and Luthien's music. Um, and initially, it looks like it has a similar effect, but of course, it in the it has a much more profound effect as she walks. Uh, she just you know walks straight out towards the spiders, and her song grows. And then we see the girdle uh, come out from her and just blast the spiders back and destroy their webs, and uh, and and they scatter and run, and the girdle is established. The reason I wanted to do, uh, I was thinking of it that way, is not only just I kind of like the visuals of that. Um, but I, I really like the idea of her joining her music to the music of Dairon and Luthien um, in that, you know, when Melian is not – Melian is not like an intervention from outside. In a sense, she is, of course, because, of course, she's one of the Maya, but she has joined herself to the elves, right? And the idea that her song and the elves' song are interweaving and are similar and interwoven, especially, of course, with like, Luthien is like she is the interweaving, right, of uh, of of the Maya and uh, and the elves. Um, so to be – I, I kind of wanted to visually – represent that, that they're kind of coming together. Um, but uh, anyway, what do you guys think of that? Well, it certainly helps explain why she didn't just do that in the first place. Um, you, you know, because uh, that, that was one of, like, my main concerns is that Melian could have done this at... If Melian could have done this at any time all by herself, why didn't she just do that? Right. Um, I guess if we have if we have her join them at the point of conflict, and one thing um, that we could do with this that will kind of bookend stuff that we had, was happening earlier, um, the it, at the very very beginning of this plot line, we had Melian and Shelob make like long distance uh, metaphorical eye contact. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. like right at the the introduction, if Shelob is like right is like right front and center at that portcullis, yes, yes, and and Melian looks right at her before before she starts to sing, like it will it will also help tie that all in together. Yes, um, you know, I I agree I agree with that. Um, a couple things that I would say with the question of why doesn't she do it sooner, which is an excellent question, of course. Um, well, it's a question, it's a problem that we created, so... Well, yes, <laughs> it is, but it, I mean, but, right. I, I, But it's an important question to consider, is my point. A um, couple things there. First of all, I would want to minimize the number of elvish casualties inside mm-hmm. Menegroth. Um, yeah. For this reason, because that she would wait is explicable until we get to the like if she's just sitting back and doing nothing while watching the people die, that's a problem, right? That becomes an active right. problem. Um, the spiders, when they were fighting up above ground, the spiders took them by surprise, right? So we can have elves dying yeah. up there and Dairon leading the, because, like, she doesn't even know that they're coming, right? So that she hasn't intervened yet at that point, you know, no one would think that she would. Um, 
once the spiders are besieging them at the gates and at the portcullis, um, if if a bunch of elves die there, then we have uh, uh, then then she has some culpability, right, uh, for their deaths if she could have done something and she didn't. Um, so that's one way I think to kind of handle like she she doesn't have any intention of letting the spiders overrun Minigroth. Um One of the things that I think we could sort of I don't know if we need to establish this, like if we need people to actually say this at some point or something, I don't know that we do, but essentially what I'm thinking is that the re- as far as the reason she doesn't do it sooner is that she doesn't know at first that it's necessary. Like they are assessing, like they're figuring out how strong the spiders are. They don't know. They don't know anything about these creatures. Um, even the fact that these are the children of Ungoliant, this is something that, that Melian would be essentially diagnosing as they're attacking, right? So, oh, you know what? Go ahead. I, 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 may, I may have a, a solution, which I'm, I'm totally cutting you off, and I apologize. Okay. No, no, no. Um, what if what if she had wanted to avoid cutting Doriath off from the rest of the world? Yes. Uh, the girls of... Where you were going? Sort of, yeah, sort of. I mean, again, the first very practical, simple thing is she wouldn't know instantly. How would she? Why would she know instantly that that kind of a radical solution was necessary, right? Um, she's they, – they don't know anything about these creatures. She Like, all of a sudden, you know, the elves have been driven back. What does she know about it? Right. You know, like, oh, so there are these like monstrous spider creatures. Oh, really? Spider creatures. Are they? I wonder if they're. And then, you know, so then she's going to figure out like, oh, OK, right. I'm seeing. Oh, like I see the un, the unlight webs. Right. Uh, OK. So this is these are these are obviously the offspring of Ungoliant. I'm now learning because we've never met them before. Uh, so uh, I wonder what we can do about them. And then, you know, so so her. It's not that she's just, I could have done the girdle any time and I'm just waiting. Like, she does it when she figures out that that's what's, that that's what's required. But, Nick, I was thinking of going in a similar kind of direction um, to what you were saying. That is, the girdle is a kind of a nuclear option, right? I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a big deal that Doriath gets it's isolated. Excessive. Yes. Um, it's a, it's, and here's the other thing that I would... A question that I would ask. This isn't something that gets mentioned in the story. Uh, there's, I'm not trying to argue that there is any indication that Tolkien expresses this. But would we want to make there be a cost for the girdle? Not just in the sense of the cost of isolating Doriath, um, but a cost to Melian. I want to make sure that we don't make her power look infinite. I so you're would, saying she has to have like gray streaks in her hair after this? Well, more than oh. cosmetic. More than cosmetic. I mean, basically, especially keep in mind if we want to show that the power that Morgoth is asserting comes at a cost to him, right? I would think that not only establishing but indefinitely maintaining the girdle would have a cost to Melian. I I had kind of intended to do that, um, and you guys told me you didn't want us to do that on the grounds that she shouldn't be tired thereafter. Like not tired. They, they be, well, no, 
but they shouldn't be that it's not the same as what Morgoth is. It's doing. not the same. It's not the same, but <clears throat> here's the painted yourself into a corner, Corey. No, because see, here's the here's the other thing. Um, I'm not painting myself in a corner, Dave. I am solving a problem later. Uh-huh. Right? Because here's the problem later, which is a problem in the Silmarillion, right? Why does she leave? Oh, an army is assaulting Doriath. Thingol's dead. I'm really sad that my husband's dead, but you know what I'm going to do? Leave my people and, like, the, you know, I'm just going to talk to Maglor and be like, so y'all are on your own now and you're pretty much screwed. So I'm going back to Valinor. Bye. And and she drops the girdle and leaves, right? Um, again, it, it, like, it works in the kind of story that the published Silmarillion is in. With the like having had Melian as a character for years, like how would we carry that off at that point? Like why would she? How would it not look like a failure or even a betrayal for Melian to just waltz off and say, "I'm going to choose to leave Doriath open to its enemies right now, and I don't care." Bye. Um, that's going to be hard to do. So what? That's actually the end towards which I'm thinking right now. I agree with. Uh, Nick, uh, according to your testimony, myself, which I perfectly believe, uh, <laughs> that we 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 want to make sure it doesn't look like Morgoth. It's not the same thing, and yet, I think that there does need to be a cost. There needs to be a. Um, she can't just be an infinite well of power. We don't want to make her look like an equal and opposite pole to Morgoth here, you know, and um. Yeah. Hakan says it's not about losing energy, but she's locked to the area. Yes, but not only locked to the area, Hakan. See, I'm thinking I want to make the death of Thingol have a causal, like a direct causal link to the dropping of the girdle. Um, This is why it is kind of coming from my vague thoughts about her joining her song to the elves. Um, you know, to, to Diron and Luthien's song. It's hard because Thingol's not there, so having it attached to Thingol's lifespan. Um, I'm thinking of it more being attached to her family because, uh, um, but, you know, because Luthien's had her, she's in her post-death experience at that point. It's a little complicated. But anyway, the point is, if she could be anchoring the girdle, in a sense, to... Thingol and, um, you know, to the, to the, I mean, it would have to be to Thingol if it's going to be Thingol's death that's going to, that's going to lead to it. Um, so you want us to show, go ahead, Marie. Sorry. You want us to show an effect on Thingol when the girdle goes up? Like we want to show Thingol, like feel it happen or something? Or something. It's awkward doing this without him there. I mean, I wait, totally, wait, 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 wait. Yeah. What if, what if she's she's singing the girdle up? Yeah. And in the midst of the fight that he's having, he he, he can hear her. He hears the even song. if it's yeah. fine. And he joins. In, he, he stops what he's it. doing. Yes. He and he joins in with her. Yes. Yeah. Now the risk there is that we make the girdle of Melian look like a team effort, which once he dies, she can't keep up on her own, which is not exactly right. Um, 
But if that's the impression people get, I don't hate that totally. I mean, we could do worse than to convey that, I think. Um, Because certainly, I mean, the reason that she leaves is that she tied herself to Thingol, right? Or rather, the only reason she had bound herself to Middle-earth was because of her marriage with Thingol. So when Thingol is gone, um, you know, her her connection to Doriath, her connection to Middle-earth is broken. Um, um, but, but yeah, um, Hakan says her power is her love for the Sindar and Doriath and Thingo is central to that. Yes. Yes. Maybe we can tie this to Thingo explicitly. Now, Nick, again, I'm not, I like the idea of Thingol joining his song to it. I, I think we can do that, um, especially since we already had him in the army uh, uh, on the outskirts there. I like that happening. But um, I'm thinking... Uh, maybe if there's some... Who else is there? Who else is in Menegroth? Melian, Dairon, Luthien, anybody else? Anybody else you can talk to? Beleg's there? Beleg is there. Okay. Yeah. Then yeah, maybe it's, maybe maybe she could have Beleg to talk to. Um, maybe Beleg expresses to her. So as she's watching the spider's inexorable attempts to break through and realize they're going to get through, Beleg also will say, could remind her that like Thingol and his army are returning and the spiders are going to surely destroy them above ground. Um, so that we see it's, she, she is motivated not only just by the protection of Menegroth, not just by the repul, you know, the, the desire to defeat the spiders, but we have this link to, you know, she can make a speech about, you know, you know, she has, she has bound herself to this land because of her love of Thingol and her, and her, you know, her love of Thingol and, uh, and the Sindar. Uh, you know, for Thingol and for Luthien uh, and for, you know, for all of them. In the song. All right. She had lyrics in which she talks about that. Something like that. And if we subtitle them, then that's fine. You know, we can make that work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we'll have time later on for her to explain some of this, right? She can say in future seasons somewhere that like, you know, the girdle, you know, the power of the girdle can only last as long as, you know, we, we can, we can, we can have some exposition in a conversation maybe between, um, Goadriel and Melian later on, uh, to have her explain, um, how that works. I just want to make sure that we're setting that up. Uh, because again, I, I, I think the departure of Melian is going to be a serious problem for us if we don't. And, and this seems like an opportunity to kind of set the stage for that basically. Right. We, we need to show that she doesn't have the choice to stay and yes. remain queen. Yes. That, that's exactly that, what we need to do. Yeah. That it, it's just the natural consequence of the choices she made previously that she now has to exit stage right for reasons. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and I do. It's it's interesting because we're kind of building this construct where, you know, you could say of the girdle that it is not built on fear of the enemy, but on but on love. Yes. 
as yes. corny as that is. But, right. Know. No, exactly. Um, and that is, uh, yes, yes, no, exactly. That, that, that I think works. Um, yes. Uh, the day will come that my bond to this land is broken and then the song of the girdle shall cease. Yeah, that's a good line. I like that. That'll work. She can, and she, she can, that's exactly the kind of thing she could say to go Adriel, uh, during their, you know, one of their tutorial sessions, uh, later on. Um, but, uh, okay. Yeah. I, like I said, I, I just want to maintain a, an unaging king, a paradisical kingdom. Step one. Right. Exactly. But she knows there's a limit to it, right? It's not going to last forever. Um, it can't last forever. And that when I, uh, Okay. Notes towards that future conversation with Goadriel as well. Melian could talk about the time when she is going to diminish and pass into the West, essentially, right? Um, because I think that that's what, like, her, when the girdle fades, her, you know, she is going to be, you know, again, there need to be consequences, right? There, this is not just something that she kind of, the girdle can't just be something that she could pull out at any time that she wants to maintain for as long as she wants. And then, you know, be unaffected by afterwards. Uh, you know, if it's all just purely elective and, and effortless on her part, um, she's not one of the children of Iluvatar, but the idea of her, like basically putting herself in a place where she has to like go into retreat, uh, in Valinor, um, in order to recover her strength. Um, you know, that when the girdle is, when, when the, the, the bond is broken and, and the girdle fades that she is, she couldn't, she couldn't do it again. Um, there is no option for her to throw up a second girdle at that point. It's not entirely unlike, what happens to Sauron after the destruction? I was thinking the Rick. same exact thing. Yeah. Now, I mean, it's of course, not, it's not wholly unlike it. It's not wholly unlike it. It's 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 not the same. But yeah, it's especially since again, what Sauron is Sauron's what happens to Sauron is a consequence of him pulling a Morgoth, right, and uh, uh, putting his own power into the Ring of Power, um, so that when he when it's taken from him, he uh, is diminished. But the main thing, Nick, the main similarity that I see is the idea of like, just as Sauron recuperates over time, so could she essentially. Um, yeah. Yeah. Marielle says we could think about it as Sauron's actions being like a corrupt version of Melian's actions. You know, they both have consequences, but, uh, you know, Sauron's are, because it's 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 as much about the motivations as about the mechanisms there. So, yeah, okay. So yeah, I'm so I'm not thinking. You know, we obviously we don't want Melian when she's doing this to look like Green Galadriel in the Hobbit movies. You know, we don't want to be doing anything like that to show that you know this is like her. You know, obviously we want to avoid anything like that. I don't want to make her hair turn gray. You know, we don't have to, nothing like that. But um, we do need to, sh- because while the girdle is in place, sh- her power is undiminished, right? The point is not that she is now lesser because she has put forth this power, but rather by putting, f- 
by pouring so much of her power into um, into the girdle when her bond to the land is broken and the girdle falls, she will be diminished by, at that point she will be diminished. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Okay. Um, last point. Episode 12. Helcaraxa. Galadriel and Fingolfin. I want to iron this out a little bit more. So you guys have this, not exactly a power struggle, but you guys have this tension between uh, the the primary kind of drama, I mean, apart from freezing to death and starving, uh, that you have uh, for the the followers of Fingolfin on the Helcaraxa in this episode is the tension between Fingolfin and Galadriel. But I wanted to, I wanted to kind of tease that out a little bit more. I think we need to, we need to work on the, the premises here. The thing that was least clear to me in reading it was what's Galadriel's plan? Like what she doesn't like what Fingolfin is doing, meaning what? Like the problem is to have them disagree in how leadership should happen. What they don't have is the option for having alternative plans for what to do, right? Uh, like, he says, we need to go on. What's she going to say? No, we should not go on, or we should go back. Like, it's it's too late to go back. Everybody should be able to see it's too late to go back. Like, they, they know they're not going to survive the entire trip retracing their steps. Um, their only hope is to go on. It would, it just seems kind of dumb or foolish to argue anything other than going on. So therefore, if they're going to disagree and I like their disagreement, I'm not, I'm not conceptually disagreeing. I'm just wanting to iron out on what basis are they disagreeing? What's the nature of their leadership, of their leadership struggle? It's, it's not so much that Ladrill has like this awesome option Right. That she's right. putting forward that, that Fingolfin's not going for. Right. Uh, she feels like he's taking this way too lately. Like, she doesn't even ca- like he doesn't even care that they're clearly all going to die. Um, and she, what she's thinking is that we need to come up with a solution to this problem because what we're doing isn't working. Okay. Like there's no there's no end there's no visible end to what we're doing. She may not have the solution, right? On, it, like on hand, she doesn't have it on her to figure out like what the solution is. Um, but what she doesn't realize is that Fingolfin's kind of already thought that through, right? Like well, it looks so- like he hasn't thought it through because if he had thought it through, he'd be way more concerned. Like he's off having conversations about birthdays and and stuff like stuff like that. Well, it's, it's hard because see, uh, here here's my objection: is that I can't imagine Fingolfin acting in a way that actually leads us to believe that he really is taking it lightly. Um, if what he's doing that leads her to think he's taking it lightly is essentially just trying to keep people's morale up and keep them hoping and moving forward for her to argue against that makes her look dumb. Like, no, like let's trash everybody's morale. That's a much better plan. Like it's just, it's hard for me to find a positive, uh, a positive thing for her to be for, you know? 
Um, right. Yeah, I hear you. I, I mean, have, I've had a number of discussions of the kind that her and Galadriel, that, that Galadriel and Fingolfin are having in this scene. I've had those conversations many times. Right. Um, where it, it appears to a concerned observer that I'm not concerned. Right, right. Now, I understand, but, but again, I'm feeling in these circumstances... Okay, two things. One, the most important thing... Is this true? Yes. The most important thing that comes out of the entire Helcaraxa arc is Fingolfin as leader, right? Right. Fingolfin's growth as... So that when Fingolfin is hailed as the High King of the Noldor afterwards, it is, like, good and natural, and he has totally earned this. The last of that kind of annoying Fingolfin that you guys permitted me to have in Season 2 dies on the Helcaraxa, right? Um, He is going to be reforged like Ringil, in the crossing of the Helcaraxa. So the, the Fingolfin who emerges from the Helcaraxa is like the reforged blade, right? That's what I love about that. By the way, when does that happen, the reforging? Next season? Do we get the next? Season four. Absolutely, season, season four. four, yeah. It's got to be. There's no time. Uh, if they could establish a forge, then they would be able to do a lot of other things, wouldn't they? So, yeah, okay, right. Anyway, so so it has to be in memoriam, I guess, afterwards, which is fine. But anyway, whatever. The po- So the point is, he, so that his emergence as a leader, so we need to really show... We have to, our number one priority, therefore, is to convey what he is learning about being a leader and him taking responsibility for the Noldor as a leader. So even having him act in a way which is potentially ambiguous and might be interpreted as him not caring what's going on would, I think, be kind of disastrous for his character. Um, we need to make sure that there is there can be no question that he is becoming a good leader because that's the number one most that's way more important than any issues that Galadriel has like better for Galadriel to have no issues at all than for Fingolfin's leadership to be brought into doubt like everybody should know including especially the viewers that everything is fine in which case if Galadriel is objecting then it makes her look the fool and I don't want her to look the fool either here's my potential solution to this problem because I have I do have a potential solution the one angle that I can think of that they could differ, because they can't differ on the plan of what to do, right? Because, like, keep walking is pretty much the plan. I mean, there's, there's the, as you say, there's really nothing else to suggest. Um, but there is one point on which they can really differ and which would have a really important effect, and that is the motivation, right? There's what is there to keep go- What will keep you moving? What will keep you going? Why shouldn't you just lie down and die? Right, because at this point in the crossing of the Helcaraxa, in the last stretch of the crossing of the Helcaraxa, that's what you need, right? Before, and this reflects the conversation we had before. They needed a reason to embark, right? Now they need a reason to not just lie down and die, which would be by far the easiest thing, as they're all like now starving, and and many of them are dying all the time. They have lots of reasons to give up hope uh, and think that they're not any of them going to survive. What is it that's going to keep them going? And so ultimately, I think the real question becomes, is are those is that thing that keeps you going the positive thing, right? Is it hope for the good or is it anger against the evil that keeps you going? 
Um, and I could imagine Fingolfin and Goadriel differing on that point, having Goadriel become the spokesperson for, I mean, she could still, you know, Angrod, who was a spokesperson before, can still be speaking for it, right? Um, we could have Turgon, as you guys, I think, were suggesting. Turgon is, is like the, he's the pessimistic one, right? Um, so we could give someone, someone have someone be the, the spokesperson for the, we might as well all lie down and die uh, point of view, right? We could actually have somebody say that, Um I don't know if we necessarily want to make that Turgon, but given, uh, uh, you know, him still dealing with, you know, grief from the death of Elenway, we could do that. Uh, I think it would be defensible under those circumstances. But have Goadriel be the spokesperson of the Vengeance Party, essentially. Like, it is our, like, vengeance against the people who did this to us. Like, this is Feanor's fault. He did this to us. Everyone who dies is on him. Like, we must live so that we can take our vengeance against Feanor. And Fingolfin's argument is that's that's not a way to live. Right? That's... Uh, and, and remember how this also... The, the really neat thing is that that touches on Feanor's death scene itself. Right, the spirit in which Feanor died—that spirit of "I am cursing Morgoth, even though it's useless—and despite the fact that um, I know for a fact it's not going to work, yet I am still going to choose to pour out my spirit in wrath and vengeance and and uh, rage against Morgoth. Like that's what he, how he dies. Right, that that is the the, the way in which he dies. So to show essentially. Uh, uh, Goadriel and Angrod and others echoing that, right? Adopting that same kind of attitude. And, you know, Fingolfin has to, has to be then making their, to say that's, that's not, that's not a reason to live. Like that's not a reason to move forward. And if we do move forward in that, then we're going to be no better than Fan or heck, we might end up no better than Morgoth. If that is, if, if this is, if that's what takes us into Middle Earth, then, it will be better for us to have died than to arrive in Middle Earth like that. Um, and so the, the sort of, we should, we, we, so therefore we show him not only showing courage, not only showing care for the people, um, but the wisdom for them, not only to survive, but to survive as the good guys when they get there. Right. Um, but, uh, Anyway, so that, 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 that was my thought as to, like, how that conflict might work in ways that kind of fit better with the other themes uh, of, the, of the story. And uh, uh, because there I think we can have radical disagreement. It's the only subject on which I can imagine them having radical disagreement. I mean, they're all going to agree that they, they, they'd quite like to eat and they'd quite like to warm up and they'd quite like to get there and there's no point in going back. Uh, but that they could, they could disagree on, you know, what it's, what it's worth. And this also, of course, sets up Fingolfin's role when they meet with the Feanorians, right? Why is it that they do not immediately fall upon the Feanorians and start, you know, kinslaying part two? Uh, and the reason is Fingolfin has already prepared them to resist that temptation and he'd have to make another speech and probably hold back at least one or two people, uh, like Angrod who are still quite keen to do it. Um, 
But Galadriel herself would already have changed her mind at that point as well. You know, so this would be a lesson that Galadriel learns. Is this a way that we could make this, is there a way we can make this lesson relevant for Galadriel later on? Um, well, one thing that I'd, I'd like to be careful of is, is not to make it, is not to telegraph too hard that um, there's not going to be conflict between oh, yeah. sure. and the Fanor. Sure. Like we don't want it to be a foregone conclusion that everything is going to work out fine when we get there because we're going to try to use that as a right. as a point of, of yep. contention yep. there. Yeah. No. Agreed. Um, agreed. One thing that we like, and maybe it's it's not clear. One thing that we had happening here is Galadriel's kind of accusing Fingolfin of being a little dishonest with his people. Um, by telling them that it's going to be like it's going to be fine, just keep going, which isn't necessarily untrue because he doesn't know. Well, but see again, I don't like that argument from her because again, like what the heck is he supposed to say? You know, I mean, it's it's the issue there is just is hope. Right, and he's arguing for for oh, he he is he is arguing for hope. What's he going to do? Argue against it? Like I think we should despair. That's my argument, right? Um, and I think we should. What's more, encourage everybody else to despair. Like she's not going to say that. Who's going to say that? Right? Again, only an idiot is going to say. It. Well, sure, but we don't want it to be Galadriel, right? I mean, yeah, sure, we can have somebody be be like Job's wife and say curse God and die, but uh, but I, I don't think we want that to be Galadriel. Um, it's not really a tenable, it, it, it is an understandable reaction, but it's not a tenable argument. It's not like an alternative leadership approach, right? I mean, there's no, there's, there's no. Right, that's the challenge here is trying to figure yeah. out what Galadriel's idea is. It's okay for her to be unhappy with Fingolfin's leadership, but anything that she would want to do in opposition to that makes her an idiot or a bad person. And that's not what we want to do with her character either. So it is a challenge. Yeah, exactly. But which is why, because again, I think that, that, that like use hatred as the fire to keep you warm and keep you going. Right. Um, is very understandable. Um, and is even, it's not dumb because it could work. Right. Um, it's a viable approach. It's a viable leadership approach. Um, to say, let's focus on the vengeance that we are going to take for this. You know, let every like shiver and every, you know, uh, like every suffering that you are experiencing right now, every loss that we've had, let it fuel your desire to get to the end of this and take vengeance on those who did this to us. That is a totally defensible um, survival technique, you know, and, and would, that has to fail is what you're is that we have to show that failing. We have to show that Fingolfin does not accept that and that at least the majority accept it. Now, I agree with you, Nick, we need to keep it alive, right? Um, so that we do have that tension. And But I think that that tension can come from the fact that it's obvious that there are many people who think that way, right? Um, and although Fingolfin argues against it and does not embrace that, and he you know, leads people to be thinking, you know, to, to be resting on hope, on positive hope for the future, rather than on, you know, the taking of vengeance against, you know, just like hatred and wrath and vengeance being the fuel that keeps them alive. Um, 
not everybody thinks that way, right? So there can still be plenty of hotheads that might lead to disaster so that we can still retain, uh, I agree with you, that so, kind of tension uh, in Mithrin. But. So, so the plot arc that you're looking for is they start out with Fingolfin embracing hope rather than vengeance and for the episode to end with Fingolfin embracing hope rather than vengeance. Uh, convincing Goadriel to em- embrace hope rather than vengeance. Convincing Goadriel that her path is the path of disaster. And that if she pursues that path, if Goadriel, if Goadriel goes that way and keeps going that way, then, you know, she makes a speech about what that looks like down the road, right? <laughs> you know, like, that's the path. That's the path that leads, you know, to her... Uh, being the dark lady of Middle Earth, right? Um, uh, the well, fact that that's a viable option what? for her, that that's a real potential, is something that we can. Yeah. That's, I think, that you know, the, the you know, a kind of seed that we can, that we can, uh, we can sow there. The thing that I'm I'm concerned about is is still that if this is Fingolfin's point. If Fingolfin's making this case throughout this whole episode that it kind of takes it, it takes a little bit of the the wind out of the sails of asking the viewer to believe that Fingolfin might use his army against the Feanorians. Um, it's uh... Marielle's just said, assuming that some of the audience has seen Game of Thrones, they shouldn't be operating under the assumption that the followers will do what the leaders want. Um, That's true. That's kind of, no, but that's kind of where I am too. I mean, it's, first of all, let's remember um, that the army that he's leading, you know, the people that he's leading are like his people and the people of Finarfin. Not to mention the fact that it's not like the elves have a robust history of like complete dictatorship by the king, right? Um, yeah. Just because he says they really should not, they, you know, that he does not want to like uh, be gunning for vengeance as soon as they arrive in Middle Earth, doesn't necessarily mean that everybody else is going to go along with that, right? I mean, the uh, the 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 people of Finar, some of the people of Finarfin, if they like, if Angrod wants to lead his people off into battle, he could totally do that. Right. Um, so, so you want to set up the conflict as not being between Fingolfin and the Feanorians, but other people and the Feanorians? I I don't think that we need to depict all of those who came with Fingolfin across the Helcaraxa as an utterly united front. Is what I'm saying. No, I I, I, I understand. And that. I'm of these things, I, you know, what we're setting is the trajectory for Fingolfin to emerge from everybody the people who followed him and the Feanorians that are there, um, that when everybody looks to him and says, this is the dude who should be high king over all of the Noldor, it should make sense. And his and he needs to be the one that has to be rooted in the wisdom with which he handles this whole situation, I think. If it's not, okay. then it, it's not going to look deserved. So I think that the tension needn't come from wavering and changing within him here. Um, but him navigating the leadership challenges of not only like helping keep everybody going and not giving up. Like for, So his first leadership challenge here is how to keep people going and prevent them giving up. 
right? And then also not to like turn the you know, to dedicate themselves to wrath and 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 set out like gung ho for kinslaying part two is going to be part of this challenge, but that challenge isn't going to be ended here, right? This conversation with Goadriel is the first stage of that. There's going to be more of that because there will still be people right. who will be gunning for kinslaying part two when they arrive, right? Right. Well, I mean, I'm I'm not really so. So okay, so when Fingolfin reforges his sword into Ringle, yes. At this point, you are not imagining that we should expect the audience to be wondering whether he intends it to be used against Morgoth or against the Feanorians. We are we are completely abandoning that that potential. I'm fine. Okay, I mean, on the one hand, I'm not saying that Fingolfin should never have any, like, temptation. You know, that, like, when he is confronting the Feanorians, he shouldn't be upset. You know, that we need to, like, completely kind of neuter him in that sort of way. Um, He can have... We can show him, like, at times having difficulty following his own policy. But no, I don't think we should have him forging Ringil. Um with the intention or even like entertaining the the potential of using it against the Feanorians. I'd no, I don't think that we should do that. I, no, I, I I don't think that we should either. I'm asking whether or not the audience should know like I think that, that I think that concealing that from the audience is not worth the cost. Um the cost of undermining his leadership. The, I mean, I think that showing him as being the awesome, wise, also powerful, also, I mean, like the, the, I mean, that's the scene that we're giving him at the end uh, of episode 13 at the gates of Angband is awesome, right? We're showing his strength. We're showing his, um, his, uh, so he's not just, he's not just, a, he's not just like becoming Finarf in part two, right? He's not just becoming like the mediator and like, let's all get along, um, he is also the strong war leader. There's, there's war policy involved in this, right? And his resolution against Morgoth. Um, I mean, that can be part of course, of his argument against, um, Goadriel is, you know, it's not just that he's become a, a, a pacifist, right? Um, but that like, let us not get confused who the enemy is here. Right. Um, and if we, uh, if we, set out in vengeance against Feanor and his sons, we are not only becoming like Morgoth, we're also doing Morgoth's work directly um, by enabling him to come in and destroy all of us. Um, So it is foolish as well as wicked for us to, uh, uh, to, you know, meet violence with violence and, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, try to avenge kinslaying with kinslaying. Um, uh, to you know, to meet betrayal with betrayal, uh, that's wrong and bad, and he should argue against that. But again, this doesn't make him weak. It doesn't make him a pacifist. Um, and I, and I think that we, I, I do think that we need to make him really firm on that in order to show because he is going to be steering the course. He's the king, right? He is going to be steering the course. He is the one who's. Uh, uh, whose voice is going to win out um, and how the leaguer of Angband is going to be established, that ultimately they need to put their differences aside, they need to join together and fight against Morgoth. Um, so do we need... I, mean, I guess he can say, he can say that 
that Feanor will receive his justice. Like, uh, it, you know, that way we're not completely abandoning. See, I that, I that think conflict. that you are you are wanting to to you want the audience to be in doubt as to whether or not Fingolfin is going to go for Feanor when he arrives there. Like, you want to preserve that tension until no, the last second. No, no, that, that tension's completely gone because Feanor is dead. No, I know um, that, but 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 he doesn't know that. Um, right. I, 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 I don't care about deceiving the audience on on this. Like, I don't think that we need to we need to withhold this from the audience. Or rather, again, I think the cost of withholding the resolution of Fingolfin is way too high for the for the for the return. Um, it matters very little to me that they know what he really thinks. Um, he's the leader. He needs to be communicating what he really thinks. In as much as people are left in doubt what he's planning to do, he's being a crappy leader, and I want to show him being a good leader. You know, that's more. That's what's way more important to me than uh, than any kind of uh, you know ways in which we could be trying to manipulate our audience through that. You see what I mean? So, so we definitely and don't think- want him to be. So- certain admirals of certain resistances of certain Star Wars universes. <laughs> right, because that was a yeah. terrible idea. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> but, uh, Nick, to get back to your point about the reforging of Ringle, he broke that sword when he said, and I'm not going to do any more kinslaying. Yes. So if he reforges it and then shows up to a meeting with the Feanorians wearing it, they can draw their own conclusions from yes. that that might not be his intention. So we can still do something with the tension in Feanor's camp without Fingolfin right. having to right. go around saying... I see he's, I, I, I see he's reforged things. the anti-Kinsling sword. That, that, that can't be good. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, the, only, the only other thing is that it, like, one of the things, in, in my reading of the Cimmerillion at least, that one of the major reasons why the conflict between the Feanorians and Fingolfin's host does not break out has to do with Fingon's rescue of Mithros. Yes. And, and, and Mithros' abdication. Yeah. Abdic- yeah. That, that I, I just don't want to be taking away from that by no. saying Fingolfin never intended for there to be, it, be conflict between his host and the Feanorians. Right. No, I, I agree, but at the same time, if we have if we don't have Fingolfin be the reason there is not conflict at first, and like, so essentially to, to take that idea to its extreme, right? If we have Fingolfin totally okay with attacking the Feanorians and battle is going to totally break out really soon until Fingon acting on his own does the thing that brings about peace, then we've totally undermined Fingolfin. And again, and I so and, and and again, that's not a price I'm willing to pay, even for the for elevating the awesomeness of the of the Fingon scene. I agree that that's really important, but to me, what it's important for is convincing other people. Right? Fingolfin is firm about what needs to be done. The reason what he's done happens, like he doesn't again, he doesn't have the kind of authority. He's not going to start executing people if they don't agree with him, right? This is not how he's going to assert his power. Um, he's clear on what should happen. He's he's the reason why they they don't like charge when they see each other, or at least why the people of Fingolfin don't charge when they initially come down, right? There is an uneasy peace. It's still uneasy because not everybody agrees with him, right? There, he's still having to hold back the people who really want to attack. 
what and 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 then the Feanorians, right? What's their perspective on this? It's uh, the actions of Fingen and Mithros have the effect of helping to pacify everybody else, right? Fingen is basically going to shame his own brothers and cousins, right, by his action, and that's going to help to quell them, not pacify them utterly, right? They're going to still they're, they're still going to be bad blood, right? But they get shamed into into going along, uh, into agreeing with Fingolfin by the actions of Fingen, right? And then Mithros's actions bring the Feanorians into line, right? Mm. And also Fingen's I mean, action, you know, impacts the Feanorians and their side of it. Um, but exactly, as Marielle says, we can have a lot of tension despite Fingolfin's wishes. That's exactly where I see the tension coming in. So it's not that Fingolfin is wavering. It's just that ultimately the the wise policy of Fingolfin is ultimately going to be the one that is followed. But it's not because he's like able to like dictate things absolutely. Okay. I mean, I think I, I everybody's got some really good points and I, I will, we'll have to kind of revisit that, that plot line and figure out how to make all this work. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm not going to say I'm 100% sold on this, but that's okay. And if I, if we keep going around and around on this, we're never going to get to episode 13. So why don't we <laughs> True. do that? True. True. Okay. Cool. Well, that's actually one of the biggest things I wanted to talk about today anyway. So that was, uh, I, I knew that this was going to be the kind of weightiest, uh, I think it's the only, let's see, is this true? Yeah. I think this is the only like major thing that I had an issue with. I mean, there's some other like questions that I had or sort of small like suggestions, but this is the only. I'll, I'll be honest. We really struggled with this one because like, Quite honestly, more of the man versus environment, uh, you know, mm-hmm. plot dynamic just didn't feel like it was strong enough. Yes, yes. To, to carry through this episode. So. Yep, yep, agreed. And I like the, I mean, I really like the concept, um, the overall concept of, you know, the kind of Galadriel gets uppity concept, you know, the, the, the idea of her, um, uh, you know, one of the things one of the continuous subplots, right? And sometimes it's going to be a fairly deeply submerged subplot, but one of the sort of subplots through the entire first age is, you know, like the education of Galadriel, right? Galadriel is going to become who she's going to be in the second and third age, uh, not by being a primary player in all of the events of the first age, but by being like a secondary background player and an observer of all these things and learning stuff, both from, uh, of course, in her direct tutorial by Melian, uh, but also all these other things. So, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Um, cool. Yeah. All right. So let's do, let's do, let's do episode 13. Let us move on. Um, Let's see things you guys wanted to emphasize. I like the sun also rises, but I I do have a suggestion for a better title. A better title would be also the sun rises, right? What do you think? Um, anyway, okay, maybe it's not uh, there were some suggestions better than my stupid <laughs> idea there. Um, the um, let's see, uh, I think Felivrin had suggested a new age hmm. since the rising of the sun kind of kicks off the first age. Yes, yes. Um, and Nick's idea was Flame of the West, Ooh. since that's what Anduril is actually named for, Ooh. is Narsil, which is the sun. Anyway. Narsil in, 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 at the end of this episode, so. 
Yeah, yeah that too. But so either of those are better than the sun also rises. Yeah. But less funny. Or also also the sun rises. I know. That's <laughs> so much less funny though. But anyway, yeah, I agree. Um yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Mariel, I was also just thinking of the word dawn as well. That was going to be my serious suggestion was just dawn. Um, but I, Flame of the West, mm-hmm. that's kind of hard to, that's kind of hard to argue against actually. Um, especially since by this time it will have been what, two episodes, it's episode 11 that we get the council, right? The debate, is that right? Or is that 12? Which council? The decision to do the sun and moon, like uh, we, we can't invade, oh, so let's do something else. Eleven. Which, 11. 11. Okay. It's eleven. Yeah. Okay. So the little, just a little reminder, like you know, the sun. Remember, the sun is the Valar acting, right? You know, that's that would be that might be good. Um, anyway, okay. Uh, uh, okay. The Doriath plotline. So you guys are talking about the Doriath plotline being rather weak. Totally agree uh, with that uh, because of course, that's natural, obviously, because like we've culminated the plot, the Dor- the Doriath plot with the establishment of the girdle in the previous episode. Um, that was, as I was reading it, that was my first question was the, like, what's the point of the little Beleg mini plot? Um, I, I do see what it gets to, which is to demonstrate the power of the girdle of Melian. I don't know that we need to do it. I, I don't, I'm not sure we don't ditch it. Like, Well, one is thing it, is we can't just, them. We don't, the, but we the, have the. I I I loved their extended sunrise scene, and the dancing of Luthien yeah. and the and the flowers and everything. So we could do that with, um, the the. So how about we just kind of combine things, right? So, in the Doriath scene, uh, in our sunrise montage, right, we get the rising of the sun as the sun rises. Thingol and the army return to Menegroth, right, and Luthien and and they come out to greet them, and Luthien is dancing, and the flowers are springing as you know Thingol and Melian are reunited, and and everybody comes back home, and everyone is happy, and yeah. nobody even has to say anything, right? But that's that. Uh, yes, that settles. That is abandoned. What? No, it's not abandonment. It's completion. Their their story is done, and we're showing the resolution right, of that problem. Yes, right? that is a problem that we that we ended their story before ending the arc of the the season. Which is fine. I I don't I don't, I don't think it's a problem at all. I mean, it's it's we're showing. I, I them. get that. <laughs> I get that. Um, <laughs> it, like I, I've I've known that you know having plot arcs for the season coincide with each other hasn't been something that you've cared about. Um, no, no, it's not. Uh, Cause again, it's not, it's, I don't see why we have to be, I mean, that seems like slavery to me, like imposing artificial rules on ourselves that we don't have to abide by. Like it's, Yes, the season needs to, the overall season arc needs to make sense, but we're tying them into the overall season arc very plainly by giving them one of the, like the most extended, uh, you know, sunrise scenes, right? And, and we're showing the peaceful resolution of the plot. The, Cause there, 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 there were very few things that were left undone, but the last of them were bringing in. So we leave, you know, we, we're leaving them in, in, in the right place. We're establishing like we, we, 
we're not finally closing their arc until Thingol comes home and we show, what, what do we show at the end? We show exactly what we need to establish moving into season four, which is Doriath as a peaceful, sheltered now, now sheltered realm in which there is like, you know, light and flowers and song and uh, harmony and there's Thingol and Melian and we've got the, we've got Cyros and some of the green elves who are there too. So we've got, this is the center of the non-Noldoran power uh, and and uh, now sheltered by the girdle of Melian. Um, we, season four is plenty of time, I think, to establish the fact that, like, yes, the girdle is a stable thing. It's, it's, we can show that visually, right, uh, if we want to. But I don't even think that we need to. You know, uh, so season four will be plenty of time to show girdle still there, right? Uh, uh, and uh, it is effective against, you know, people who are trying to get in. Um, I, 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 I'm, I'm yeah. not super concerned with that. I'm much more yeah. concerned with not giving them anything to do, Why do they uh, need in to the do finale something? episode. Why do they need it, to do something? Or rather, what do they need to do? Because they're an important, because they're an important part of the, sure. of the overall... Which is why we feature uh, them. The and they story. are part of the overall story. But again, if there's nothing that they need to do, why do we have to have them do something? Um, well... I mean, like, they're done. Well, I mean, or rather, no, I, w- I guess the argument I would want to make instead is they are doing something. Like, they are coming together and reestablish. Like, we last saw them, you know, threatened by the spiders and on the verge of death until the girdle comes in and the spiders are driven away. So they do do something, which is reestablish the strength and peace of their kingdom I, now I that sh- the spiders are gone. They just should have been doing it here. Is is what I'm saying it, but it's but because what, the of the way that the spiders, the, because of the way that the season was structured, they, we just couldn't keep, we just couldn't maintain that. I disagree. Episode. I disagree. It's not. I, I, mean, I would not want the establishment of the girdle and the spiders running away be the last thing we see from them. That would not. To me, that's not resolution. Not that's not that. the last I'm, thing that they do. The last thing that they do. I'm, the end of their action is to reestablish Doriath. Remember, Doriath has never been established. The establishment of Doriath has been... Like, yeah. That's the plot line, right? From the beginning, when they're kind of... Uh, you know, when they're sort of they're 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 kind of living wild and doing, but they don't have Menegroth yet, and the girdle isn't established, and the and the and you know anyway. So like the establishment of like Doriath and the kingdom of Doriath and what that means is ultimately the plot line. So the final oh, action yeah. is not the the kicking out of the spiders. Um, that's the that's sort of the 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 big dramatic turning point there. Uh, you know, at the end, that's like so saving it. The real action at the end is now is like the 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 the, the final establishment of the kingdom of Doriath. There's Menegroth, and it's safe, and the girdle is established, and there's Thingo and Melian, and there's Luthien. Like that is that is the action. Yeah, no one's arguing against that. Um, what I'm saying is that, in addition to having reactions to the sun at the very ep- end of the episode, there should have been some, a resolution to the, to the the pinnacle of their of their plot arc of their uh, tension arc in this episode. It's I mean it is what it is. It's 
Honestly, you know, I don't know. Uh, I, th- this is this just sounds to me like another one of those ways in which you are fixated on like the traditional ways of doing these things in TV storytelling, and I am not. I, I know I'm fixated on making a good show. I know. That's no, you're so fixated cool. on the fact the only way to make a good show is to follow the traditional rules. <laughs> is, is, well, is, is where I would I, say I think, we're differing. I, I think the idea of a of a script scriptwriter to be able to break those rules effectively, then that that probably wouldn't be as, as much of an issue, I imagine. I, I don't have that kind of confidence in, my, in myself there. Okay. But. So we, we basically are agreed that we need that first scene where Thingol returns to Menegroth and they say the word Doriath for the first time. Like, that needs to happen sure. in this episode, correct? Everyone likes that. Sure. And we like the part with the sun. And we like so the part what, with the sun, yeah. Right. So what's being requested is that we maybe cut back on the Beleg being chased yes, by the, cats outside the of Beleg plot. Met. I think I, I think that can just be cut. I don't think we need it at all. That's my that's my argument. All right. Um, is there going to be an opportunity in season four to demonstrate how the girdle works to keep out yeah. bad things? Plenty of I'm not worried about that. Yeah. Yeah. We can definitely find. Okay. As long as we have covered that, then. If we want to replace some of the Belleg scenes with some other Meanwhile and Doriath scene establishing the kingdom or Thingol and Melian's reunion, or, you know, we could probably rework it to make it more Doriath focused rather than the adventures of Belleg and his stalker cats. Yes. Um, that seems to me a, a sideline, uh, which is unlikely to. It just seems weird. Uh, like, okay. uh, and. Um, I, I don't disagree with you there. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. So yeah, we can we can have a Beleg and Mablung scene where they get to see each other again and talk about their different adventures. I mean, we can do something in Doria. By the way, that one, focuses on the story you want to tell here. Well, that's it. I mean, and and it's 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 like it, it, there doesn't have to be. I mean, I don't think there has to be. Uh, or the the resolution of uh, the resolution of tension that happens is like when they all come together, like the, the uncertainty of like what happened, the, you know, this is them putting away their weapons and building something, you know, so that we, we don't have to end their story, you know, on the battlefield, essentially, you know, we can end their story with, you know, the homecoming after the battlefield, basically. And I, and that seems to me a perfectly fine thing to have happened in the last episode. Now, I mean, I would agree if we did nothing but that in the last, if the entire episode 13 consisted of nothing but essentially, you know, happy resolutions and no, you know, uh, no kind of, you know, dramatic action at all, that would be a kind of a disappointing episode 13, probably. Um, but, uh, but yeah. Um, I, I think that we can both agree that the structure of, the last episode or like the, the, the structure of the plot arc for the season is a little wonky at the end of the season. Oh, well, I felt that way. That's why I was, I've, you know, I mean, you remember I wasn't a hundred percent sold on ending it here at all for that reason. You know, I was, I was, right. yeah, yeah. Um, no, exactly. This is the ending of this, of this season is weird. It is so much, you know, we don't get, we have ended the first two seasons with cataclysmic action, Right. Um, and we don't have any cataclysmic action at the end. Now you could say, I mean, I kind of, we've been through this before, right? The rising of the sun is at least as momentous as the other ones. And I get that, but, um, yeah. 
Well, I, I, I'm just saying that I think that the problems that we're having here can be can be solved with better better season arc planning in the future. That's that's it, and and that's not like that's just a general a general thing. And we're, you know we've been learning so much stuff as we go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In this whole process, when I look yeah. back at the, at the outlines that we read for season one, I'm like, "Wow, these are here." <laughs> well, that's what always happens, right? Whenever you look back at your previous work, it's always uh, as you know, as you as you uh, uh, as you as you develop and go. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Um, There's a reasonable spot that by the time that we're finished with all this, when we're all old and gray that we would actually be competent at actually making a television. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, exactly. Um, okay. Let's see. Mary, I don't want to get too distracted on this. Uh, Mariel is, is accusing me of like, is paralleling my, my, my arguments with, uh, being an advocate for free verse and poetry. Uh, let me just say very briefly, Mario, it's nothing like that. What it is like <laughs> is an argument against the people who, the 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 narrow-minded critics who said that uh, uh, Shakespeare was doing something bad by breaking the unity of place and the unity of time, and there's people who said they're like, no, in a play you have to maintain the unity of place and the unity of time, and Shakespeare saying that's a that's an arbitrary limitation on storytelling, and I'm not going to do it. Um, that's that's the parallel. It's, it's not saying there, you know, we need to think nothing about structure uh, uh, of any. Of course, we should have structure. We just shouldn't have to follow arbitrary external rules and make sure everything follows the same shape. Um, it's OK if the story calls for it, uh, you know, to, to have this to tell the story that we're telling uh, without having to make it conform to arbitrary uh, external definitions. That's all. Um, they, they can seem arbitrary. Um, there is a certain amount of expectation on the part of the viewer. Okay. Uh, And sometimes that that expectation will be disappointed. And and that's okay. And that's okay. Um, all I'm arguing is not to be a slave to it. I'm not saying to disregard it. I'm just saying not to be a slave to it. Um, and I think that the, that idea of saying we have to have resolution of, of, you know, the main action in the final, in the final, uh, episode, like that, that's being a slave to it. Like not, and not in every plot line and not all the time. I killed Feanor in the first or second act of an episode, so... Right, exactly. No, that's cool. I mean, the, the death of Feanor is a, is, a, is a great example of not conforming with the, the expectations. And you can find lots of opportunities of shows that don't do that. Yeah. But you also, when you take Shakespeare as your standard of people who are allowed to break the rules, of course Shakespeare can break the rules. <laughs> no, he knew see, what he was doing. But, but, <laughs> but it's different, actually. The main thing is that, because uh, there it's not... Because this is the interesting thing. Those rules are post-Shakespeare, right? Uh, Shakespeare didn't even know about those. Right? He wasn't defying those rules. He just well, was no, like... No, but my point is he can do things that work. But everybody did is the point. Like, he wasn't alone uh, in doing that. Lots of people did this. It's just that, okay. like, it's this is, like, it's critics who made it like there are rules that have to be followed. Um, right, and, and critics have ruined everything. We know, we know. You know <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, it's just that, um, uh, um, yeah, Zach says uh, um, he thought that all the plot lines being res- being resolved at the same time is kind of unrealistic. You know, real life is never so clean and tidy. You know, to have to have everything be sweeping to its conclusion at the same moment. I agree it, that doesn't uh, um, that that feels contrived, and that, that there's, there's there's an argument against it for that reason as well. Anyway, yeah, so it's not I. I don't think that, the, you know, I, I don't think that this is, you know, the case of, uh, of, you know, having to be like Shakespeare uh, and, uh, you know, to ha- you know, that one has to have the mastery of Shakespeare before one can do this, uh, but rather just um, being, an, being, a, being an extreme rule follower is, is not to be unlike Shakespeare, it's to be at the opposite extreme of Shakespeare, essentially. It's to, uh, and in my opinion, to totally put the, uh, put the cart before the horse, but anyway, okay. Um, maybe the first time I've ever been called an extreme rule follower, so I appreciate that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not accusing you of that. I'm just saying that uh, uh, that that you know we don't want to be that. Do so. I strike you as a particularly compliant <laughs> individual? <laughs> uh, no, I'm not saying that. I, I'm just saying that I, I think you do care more about the sort of the conventions of uh, like uh, screenwriting conventions than I do. <laughs> so, but that's not a very high standard in itself. Um, I, I, I do have a couple other questions, though, about the episode that are that, okay. that should be uh, uh, <laughs> less contentious. One is um, why is Kelligorm scouting? What's what's going on with the Kelligorm scouting? I wasn't totally following that. Oh, he's oh. supposed to have wanted some time away from his family just because they're annoying. That's um, understandable, but, yeah. But also to figure out what Moriv's up to, because if they just refuse to treat with him, right. the general feeling is that Morgoth is going to send an army to crush them. Okay momentarily because they don't know what kind of reserve forces he has we the audience is probably aware that morgoth's forces have been depleted because we just right. killed a whole army of works right. but the fanorians don't know that so right. um so Caligorm is basically looking out to see if morgoth is sending an army right. in, in from some other direction at them because they they just want to make sure they're yeah safe no, in Mithrim. i agree with that i don't have any problem it's not that I felt that that action was, you know, inexplicable or anything like that. It makes sense why Kelligorn would want to do it. I guess my, perhaps I didn't ask my question properly. Why do we want to show him doing it is my main question. Uh, like, it doesn't seem to lead anywhere in the episode. Exactly. Yeah, the reason we want to show him doing that is specifically to tie him, to tie the Feanorian plot into the rest of the arc of the story. Um, because to keep the Feanorians from doing nothing, basically? Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> we just had a little big, long discussion about no, this. But, but see here, th- this is actually a great illustration because you're right. I would argue that the resolution of like the people coming home and flowers springing under Luthien's feet, that is a, th- that's something that happens. So like what the, the main source of my, my argument there is that I, I disagree with say, with calling that nothing happening. That's something happening. You're right that nothing at all is happening with the Feanorians. Like there's no motion, there's no resolution, there's no they don't do it. That reestablishing the peace of Doriath is a thing that occurs, right? That's 
that's there there is positive movement in the Doriath plot, even though it's not dramatic. It, it's uh, it, it's 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 important. It's a major thing. The Feanorians are sort of just on pause. They're staying in limbo. Like Mithros has been taken. He's getting uh, stapled to the cliff. So something is happening with him. But we. What are the brothers thinking? What are they doing? What we don't know. Um, so that that I agree is a different re- situation. They do refuse terms, so that happens. Okay. But that happens early in the episode. So right. after that, they're sitting around going, "What next?" And they don't know about the host of Fingolfin yet, so they can't make any plans related to him. Where do we want to bring them? Do we want to bring them to arming against the f- people of Fingolfin? If if Kelligorn mm. were to go out scouting and to return to them saying, uh, holy cow, Fingolfin has arrived, like, they actually crossed the Helcaraxa guys, uh, and they look ticked off to me, we better defend ourselves, and they get ready to, like, defend their camp against the, against the people of Fingolfin. That would be a thing that happened. It, it would. It if would. that's where we want to uh, take them. That's going to end with Maglor vacillating on the issue and retreating to the other side of the camp because he doesn't want to deal with it. Like, he he doesn't know what to do, so his solution is to create space and time in between him and the host of Fingolfin. Um, so, which we, we had talked about being not particularly... Like, that's not super interesting. So keeping them about in the dark about it until next season, like it gives it, it makes there it makes more there's more stuff to get into that way. Yeah. Um yeah. So where do we want to leave the Feanorians? Like what do, what point do we want to bring them to exactly? I think we can focus on Maglor's totally being out of depth in this situation because he's technically the leader, but yeah, yeah, but he's not up to being a leader and they're all in the reaction stage. But at this point they're reacting, not just to the news they got, but (laughs) Amrod's dead. Feanor's dead. Mithros is captured. And probably as far as they know. Yeah a chunk of their army just got wiped out. So they're really not in a position to do any of the things they had a goal to do. Yeah. Could Kelligorm report now they're back to them that Mithros is alive? Could he see the stapling? They're not supposed to know where he is. No one's supposed to know that Mithros is on that cliff because otherwise it, someone other than Fingen could have gone to rescue him. But the point is they don't. That is true. They don't. So it might it be interesting if they do know that he's there, but they just don't, can't, won't rescue him? Because Kellogg, like, Kurafin wouldn't want to rescue him necessarily, would he? He might but want Maglor to Maglor definitely would. Maglor definitely Ma- would, but does he have the guts and ability to do it? Right. Maglor does fail Mithras in this event, yeah. but to have him knowingly fail him when he... It's one thing when he assumes that Mithras is dead or locked in a dungeon in Angband. It's another thing if he knew he was hanging on a cliff in plain sight and all the 
hosts of Morgoth have scattered because of the sunlight. All he had to do was walk up to the cliff and somehow get his brother down. Uh, like, yeah, that's true. I he knows he's that. there. That makes Magler moment. be very. Yeah. 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 I don't no, know. I mean, which maybe we don't mind making Magler that weak, but I think it's a little extra. He's going to look weak enough as it is. Oh, with... Well, though, I was going to say, is there a point at which we need Magler to be strong? I don't know that there is. I mean, I think he could be. I mean, no, he could be a wuss consistently, couldn't he? Do we really want him to be like? It's a question of how unlikable do we want him to be, especially since he's going to be the voice of reason later on, right? And he's going to raise Elrond. Uh huh. Like, I'd like to at least he could be have a the audience parent figure without having to be necessarily a really strong character. Um, I don't know. I mean, having Maglor... I'm, I'm not sure that I dislike having Maglor be kind of the pitiable son of Fanor. Sure. I mean, Amros is going to give him a run for that, but... Yeah. I mean, we do. Both of them are very much trapped by their families. Yes. Yes. But but in different ways. I mean, right? You know, I mean, Amros's issues are different from Maglor's issues. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so it's not like that's merely redundant. Um, I mean, all I just I, I would be careful about how many conversations we have with the Feanorians establishing. Like, there's there's going to be a bunch of conversations essentially establishing that everybody has different ideas about what they're supposed to do, and Magalor, the one who should be deciding what they're going to do, isn't. And right. we kind of already have had one conversation like that towards the beginning of the episode. Right. Um, we're probably going to have another one like that at the beginning of the uh, season premiere for season four. Yeah. So I would just kind of be careful how many times we dip into that well. Yeah. Well, the next... Okay, hang on a second. Let me push back one more time on this argument, though. They don't have to know exactly what happens with the sun. So, Keligorn sees he's not going to he's not going to come back with a report Mithros is just hanging out there and at a, at a moment's notice we can free him right he's going to come back with what he sees which is Maglor hanging from the cr- cl- uh, cliff with Morgoth with Gron standing right over top of him and the whole army spread out around Right. So he's going to come back and say there's good news and bad news. Right. The good news is Mothers is alive. The bad news is I, I don't see how we can possibly set him free or at least this is going to be super difficult and almost impossible. Now, it is true that the trolls will all turn to stone and everybody will scatter when the sun rises. But Kelgorm is going to see that. Right. And they won't so, necessarily know that that happens. So I don't think we, we by doing that would necessarily put Maglor in the position of just knowing all he's got to do is walk over there and set him free. He wouldn't know that they he could they could still assume that it was like an impossible task. Hold on. So here's my question. So what you're saying is. That Kelogorm sees the confrontation between Fingolfin and what remains of the no, house no, no. of Morgoth. No. What he described would have to happen before Fingolfin arrives. He sees he sees Morgoth stapling him to the cliff. So he doesn't arrives. know. So he doesn't know that Fingolfin's there. Nah, he needn't know that Fingolfin's there. But he might also see Fingolfin's army. So I mean, he could come back with a report of both of those things. Like I have a bunch right, of interesting news. If he does see Fingolfin's army there, not there, then... not there, near, not there. Oh. 
Not there. Okay. So he wouldn't see All the right. conflict. So he would come back with two separate reports. A, Mithras is alive and I saw him being imprisoned by Morgoth in a really, really strong place. And this looks kind of hopeless, I got to say. So let's, we, uh, you know, uh, like there it is. Secondly, I saw Fingolfin leading an armed force. Uh, so these are our situations. And this, of course, would be another reason for them to argue against, that would, this would give them another argument against trying to rescue Mithros right now. They're like, can we really dedicate all of our forces to trying to, like, break Mithros out of this, yes, open air, but still highly, like, uh, you know, unassailable looking prison. Yeah. Um, you know, heavily, massively guarded. If we also know that off on our flank, we have an army of like an armed force of folks who probably hate us. Um, this is a, this is not, you know, and and is marching in our, in our general direction. Yeah. Yeah. Like we should, uh, we should maybe, uh, uh, think twice about this. So, I mean, Again, if you imagine the kind of discussion that would come from that, especially given that you have the subtle and uh, unpleasant Kurofin who would kind of want to leave Mithros to die uh, in Angband. I I don't think he wants that. You don't? Kurofin is... I'm not sure. No, because uh, he certainly doesn't like Mithros' leadership. And he would much rather be the guy in charge than let his brother Mithros be in charge. Obviously. But that doesn't mean he wants to kill his brother or leave his brother for dead. He'll do that to Finrod, but later. But he's a, not going to do it to Mithras now. I don't know, but there's a difference between killing somebody and leaving them for dead. Like, he wouldn't have planned it this way. He wouldn't have stuck a knife in him or something. He wouldn't have poisoned him, uh, you know, or smothered him in his sleep. But will he go out of his way to endanger himself in order to rescue him? Not sure that he would think he might rather not because again, like he didn't plan it this way, but I think he might think Mithros is a bigger threat than that. It's not just that he dislikes Mithros's leadership. I think that he worries post burning of the ships that Mithros is going to betray the legacy of their father. They're all bound by the oath, right? But he's already Mm -hmm. shown with the whole standing aside at the burning of the ships thing that he's not necessarily on board with the, with the full Feanorian project. And, and, his doubts of his leadership would be could be i think a little bit more profound it's not just that like he thinks he might not do a good job in kurafin's world no, mithros has shown that mithros has shown he doesn't have what it takes right to be the real fanorian leader you've got to be willing to do anything for the sake of achieving the goal right and mithros obviously is not going to do that so mithros's leadership would be disastrous so again, I'm not going to off him or anything, but, you know, if circumstances have arrived in this place, then we might as well take advantage. I can see Kurofin choosing to take advantage of it and saying, I'm not going to exert myself to get my brother back. I I just think that it's it's causing us to have a couple of very, very similar scenes, all, like in pretty rapid su- succession in a single episode. Which scenes? Maglor being weak scenes? Well, Maglor being weak while the the Feanorians argue back and forth over what they yeah. should be doing. Um, like we, we, we have a scene like that ending in Kelgorm removing himself from the situation and going up scouting. So let's cut that one. Back and they do the same thing again. Let's cut that one. Kelgorm is the scout and the cavalry. We've already established that. Let's just have him out with Huon scouting. You know, all we need to do is a We don't have to give the reason why he's scouting. He doesn't have to do it in response to another argument. Let's cut the earlier argument and save the argument for later when he gets back. 
So we only have one. Well, the one thing that we did need to have the brothers do in this episode is refuse Morgoth's terms. That needs to happen. That does need to happen. Preferably at the beginning of the episode. So we do need that scene um, because otherwise we're just going to hear it from Morgoth when he taunts Mithros with it, which sounds like maybe it might not be true. Right. Right. Um, Yeah, you're right. We do need to have the refusal of the terms, but that doesn't mean we need to have a big behind closed doors Feanorian argument about it. Um, True. We just... Um, I mean, there's... There's the issue of setting up a new conflict in um, like in the latter like 20 to 30 minutes of the episode that I you know I have concerns about yeah yeah um, all right well a we're out of time and B uh, you know, we we don't need to I, I map out the whole thing. I mean, I think we've we've discussed this this sort of issues here and some possibilities. I don't. Uh, I mean, I agree that ultimately the answer to the question, uh, and this is the answer that Hakan gave like ten minutes ago. The answer to the question, where do we leave the Feanorians at the end of this episode, is in internal tension. Is that like yeah. you know like in disarray oh, is yeah. where we leave them. So. Um, and I, and I think we, we can agree on that, um, you know, how exactly we do that. Um, so ultimately, what, um, what uh, my whole thing here boils down to is simply I wanted uh, – I'm, I'm trying to find ways in which we can do that and give a, a direct outcome to Kelligorm's scouting mission other than – just trying to establish the, the, the strength of Thangarodrum, which again, like the girdle, I think we can we can establish that next. You know, as we're establishing the leaguer of Angband um, in season four, we can have plenty of let's like probe the strength of Thangarodrum, and uh, just as we're establishing the strength of the girdle, those can all be season four things. Um, so if Kelgrim is going to go out scouting, which I'm fine having him do, I think it, he should be scouting Fingolfin and or Mithros, or both, or whatever, you know, anyway. That's that's fine. But if you guys hate the idea of them knowing about Mithros, and and, and, and I understand about how it it's going to make, like, Kurafin too villainous too quickly, that's Marielle's argument. Like, season 10, Kurafin would totally scheme that way, but season 3, Kurafin wouldn't yet. Um, that's fine. You're right. Perhaps I have too static an idea of Kurafin in my mind. Um uh, and and that's you know I'm I'm totally willing to concede on that point. So, um, okay, okay, I'm I'm willing to agree with Marielle there, um, and I don't have really strong feelings about how the Feanorian thing should end. I, I I understand that it's, but I do see the challenge here that we want to make sure that we want to give, uh, and again Nick again thinking about that comparing and con- contrasting with Doriath, what the reason that I'm comfortable with where the Doria thing ends and I'm less comfortable with where the, the Feanorians end is that there is a, a, it comes to a nice conclusion. Like the Doria story comes to a nice, we do wrap up that storyline really well. Um, 
our only disagreement was whether or not the wrapping up is sufficient for like to happen to, to be the action of the final episode. Right. Um, whereas we don't get much of a wrap up. Uh, and I understand there's not going to be a resolution. We're ending in tension and conflict and disarray. So it's not, it's not about bringing that to resolution. Um, but we need to find some kind of way to convey the state to which we're going to be carrying over to, to episode four without just having it kind of peter out and end. Um, but anyway, but I know that that, that's a real challenge. That seems to me the most challenging plot line to resolve in this episode, really. Fingolfin ends on a great high note. Okay. All right. Awesome. Um, uh, so let me, (laughs) so, so much for the locations. So I guess we'll do locations we'll next time. We'll do episode. locations next time. Yeah, that's that's good. Okay. Questions for next time. It's like I'm psychic. Exactly. <laughs> How did you it's like you... I can't believe it. Um, it's like you actually know these people or something. <laughs> it's, it's like you've been podcasting with me for five years. Um, uh, yes. Okay. So... Okay, so we're going to do our next session on the 24th where we're going to be doing the creative contributions. We're going to start with the site, with the locations. Uh, we're also going to be looking at uh, other artworks, maps, costumes, creature designs. Um, we're going we're gonna to do as much of that as we can uh, in our next session. Um, the casting nominations are still in progress. So uh, we've decreed a deadline for the casting nominations. The, cast, the nominations will close on June 25th. Uh, and then we're going to open voting on the 29th. So the 29th, we'll be having that cre- you know, session discussing, discussing all those other things. And on that day, we will open the voting for uh, casting. And then we'll do the casting episode in the following episode on the 13th, I think, of uh, July. And then after that, we will do the uh, music session um, uh, after the casting. Uh, and that will be the last session of season three. All right. We will finally finish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yes, Brianna, now would be an excellent time for you to get to work on that art that you keep planning on doing. That is, it is as now is now is the perfect time. And there are three weeks between now and the next episodes. There's just a little bit of extra time in there. It's not until the 29th. Uh, But yeah, now is now is definitely the time. All right, cool. Excellent. Um, Very good. Okay, so I should run. I'm late for my next appointment already. But thanks, everybody, for joining me. Uh, And I will say, as always, thanks for listening, and Godspeed.